I'm in a yoga class at Newport Beach, and there's a woman in my yoga class mm -hmm. who does not fit the demographic whatsoever, and she's rocking an element shirt. And most people, especially even today, this would happen. They'd be like, whoa, 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 like, bro, I was just in a yoga class or my wife, not even, my wife was in a yoga class, her girlfriend, and she just came home and she saw someone in an element shirt. What are we gonna do? <laughs> That's skateboarding, right? right? What right. are we gonna do? We gotta change shit. I look at those things like base hits. Like yeah, I'm like, man. hell yeah. Hell like, yeah. what are we trying to do? Keep this all to ourselves? Totally. What, the, what the hell is that gonna do? Everyone, welcome back. And Johnny, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right. So uh, for the uninitiated people who wouldn't know, and I will say there's people who definitely know and are super psyched that you're here. But for anyone who doesn't know, can you tell us who you are and what you do? Uh, okay. Um, who am I? <laughs> <laughs> That's a big question. Uh, who am I? I'm a human being, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a father. Mm -hmm. I'm a husband. Um, I used to feel uncomfortable saying I'm an artist because I would always say, who are you to say if you're an artist or not? But I would probably at this age claim that I'm a, a creative. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I'm a businessman. Um, I don't try to think of myself as one. Mm -hmm. I think I'm, <laughs> I'm more of a creative than I am a businessman. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh. I love being outside. I'm kind of a deep person, I think. That's probably, that's that's something I probably am, uh -huh. deep thinker. Mm -hmm. um, so let's go to the thing that you're, you talked about, but you maybe were a little uncomfortable about being an artist. Mm. Uh, in what sense? So what does it mean to be an artist and why were you ever reticent for to like, kind of be like, should I call myself an artist? Uh, because I feel like, being an artist, it's almost like it, it's it's up to people to do, to decide if you're an artist or not. Like because, your like your audience. Yeah, because I think that uh, art is you know it's subjective, mm -hmm. um, and lots of people claim to be artists, but if uh, really you're an expressionist. Mm -hmm. And you do things on paper or painting or music, whatever that might be, because you have feel the need to do that. But really, I'm not sure if you do that, if you're actually an artist, because it's the people around you that would decide whether that's art or not, because art is so subjective. But um, I felt very uncomfortable calling myself an artist, even though I literally have been doing art since I was a baby. Mm -hmm. That's all I've done. And I talked to my friends or family, they will say I was drawing and creating and sculpting and building things. And just ever since I was just literally a baby. Mm -hmm. um, but up until probably I'd say 10 years ago, I kept a lot of my art kind of quiet. Um, even though I've done thousands of skateboard graphics, thousands literally over my lifespan. Um, but I never really up until recently kind of claimed a lot of that stuff. So yeah, I've always been uncomfortable with my art because I just sort of let other people decide whether I'm an artist or not. 
It's interesting though, because it was like right up front of what you were talking about. You know, you're like, I'm a human, I'm a father, I'm a partner. Um, and you went to being an artist and it's the only one that you attached a caveat. Well, except when you said like, I guess I'm a business person. Mm. Um, what made you like, was it a conscious decision to be like, actually, you know what? That's crazy. I'm, I'm going to start calling myself an artist or was it just a natural thing? Um, it had a lot to do with, it's funny. This is an interesting subject because it's pretty relevant. I, I draw this character. It's this thing I draw. I've drawn it for as far back as I can remember. And, it, and this little silly character that I draw, um, he has been in my life forever. Like it just, it, it evolved as a doodle. And so I was doing art, mm -hmm. painting, doing graffiti when I was younger and graphic design and art upon art upon art. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had this little character that I drew and he never made it onto anything. Mm -hmm. Highly unlikely that it would appear on any of my product, which I had product like everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, all over the planet. And uh, whether it was product I had designed from like fashion or skateboard graphics. I mean, you name it, I was designing it and doing it. And, you know, yeah. And I, I didn't consider myself an artist, which as I talk about, it sounds a little odd. Um, but the silly little character that I drew always gave me so much joy. Mm -hmm. And I kept it very private, this, this, this guy that I draw all the time. Um, and then eventually or actually through throughout a lot of time people would always say you know that got that that why is not on stuff like you know if i signed something i might doodle him on the on the autograph or the the thing i'm sketching or whatever he's always kind of like around that but the point i the reason i bring it up is that maybe 10 years ago it started kind of getting out there more and i really enjoyed doing it on other canvases and started creating it and then i was like i love this thing so much the silly character that I wish I could almost like, I wish this was my job because it was a strange thing. And, and you know, if I tell the story, people think I'm crazy. I was like, I wish I could just draw this guy all day. This is so easy <laughs> and it's so fun and it means so much and so simple. And, and it tells me so many things and other people, so many things, this little stick figure guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, from that, I was like, what if I was an artist and drew this character? You know, and I'd talk to my wife and she'd just be like, what are you talking about? You are an artist. Like you've created thousands <laughs> upon thousands of pieces of art. How come all of a sudden you've seen this little stick figure you've been drawing on a sketch pad for the last 40 years. Now, all of a sudden, this thing is what you think might cross you into being an artist. <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, because I want to be like Charles Schwartz or Jim Henson or, you know, I think of these other things. And somehow I decided I was like. I guess I'm an artist because of this character. If that makes any damn sense, I don't Dude, know. Dude, first of all, I'm dying to see this character now. Uh, I could draw it. Okay, okay. I'll draw it later. Okay, before you go, I got to see it. Yeah. Um, no, nah, it's cool. Like, Do you mind if I share something about me? No, go right ahead. Uh, I'm a terrible guitar player. Okay. Um, I grew up playing in bands, as I was sharing with you earlier, but I'm horrible. Like. People who have, I've been playing, probably been playing guitar or bass for like, I don't know, 20 years. I cannot, I cannot play many things. Uh, but I recently started calling myself, uh, I'm even uncomfortable saying it now. Like I started calling myself more of like a songwriter. Mm. I am not a musician at all. I think there are people who could not think there are people who have been playing for like a year who could play circles around me. 
But what I'm really good at is putting together a song. I just understand the elements of how mm. to do it. And when I would think of songwriters, you know, you think of like, first you think of like crazy, like John Lennon or something like that. Sure. But then more um, in our world, I think of someone like Walter Schreifels from Quicksand, Gorilla Biscuits. Mm -hmm. Like that's a songwriter, you know? And then if you think of maybe more, um, uh, think of you know, a band like Turnstile, like they're songwriters, like really people who create things. In my own teeny little world in like straight edge hardcore, I've started to consider myself more of a songwriter because I'm not a good musician. Um, I'm not necessarily good at doing a band, but what I am good at is putting together a song. Yeah. And I can do it for myself or I could do it for other people or I can weigh in on a song, but that I've got. And I was so reticent to do that because there's so many like good musicians around me who are like phenomenal. I don't even know what the knobs on my amp like properly do. Like really like legitimately. <laughs> like I don't know how to get a good tone, but I can write a song. Yeah. So I can I relate to that and I'm almost embarrassed saying it here, but it's like, yeah, like I'm actually more of a songwriter than I am a musician. Yeah. If, if that makes any sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. And I would almost relate to that because I would say uh I'm more of a curator. Hmm. Um and I, I guess to a certain degree, an art director slash curator uh than i am an artist and and people might depending you know the artist subjective so some people might say i'm an artist but there's no question similar to you with your confidence of saying you're a songwriter i would say i'm very confident saying i'm a curator mm. because i really do know how to like get the right people together to do the right things to tell the right story and and maybe even like help kind of shape the art or my art to like make sense with a particular initiative so uh, borderline director of like a film. Mm. So you have a vision in your head and you sort of know like how to pull it all together. Um, and that's something I, it's funny, I, I feel comfortable saying that. So I can like, uh, and by no means do I wanna brag about this, but what I feel like I'm able to do, which is pretty much the story of my life, is think of something completely absurd mm. that is very abstract but for me, it is extremely clear. Right. Like I can just see it. I can smell it. I can like walk through it. If it was a closet in the room, I could open the closet of it and see how well it was organized and even see the plumbing and the electrical and even what it looks like when you walk into the room and just surf on the surface, I can see it. I can see it from an aerial view. Um, and then I'm able to like almost dissect it on every level. and then most people are like that's insane <laughs> like what you're thinking of but i'm kind of like because i'm almost describing it on, on the surface level right, right so they're just seeing the surface of it and like that's pretty crazy and i'm like no 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 i've got the blueprints in my brain i'm i don't say this to the person but in my brain i'm like i see it top to bottom the foundation every level of this this idea and therefore it might take five years for that to materialize but i can almost like see the map to get there and i'm very very impatient, which is a part of the problem of, of uh, seeing that far into the, into the future or seeing what you might want to see materialize. And that becomes a battle because you're like, oh my gosh, I can see this house and I can see exactly how it might be built. And you can't build this house overnight. But when you can see it that clearly, it's difficult to wait for, you know, to live in it. Yeah. That can be rough. Can I share something with you? It's like part of um, my discipline of how I work with leaders. Sure. I came up with this idea of like, and this is going to be a little vague, but imagine like a spectrum where on one end is pragmatism and the other end is visionary. Mm -hmm. um, and in the middle is like someone who's equally pragmatic and equally visionary. 
uh, I find that companies that companies that can scale up and kind of like get ahead of the curve and create that next super cool thing or just are like consistently cutting edge and do cool things typically have one or a few leaders that like if the far right again was visionary and then over here is pragmatist because they're way over on the visionary side they can see things that other people can't see they can just kind of like it's like I might be showing you the microphone, but actually I'm thinking about what's inside of the microphone and I'm mm -hmm. thinking about how I get all the elements of the microphone and how we could build a better microphone. Yeah, someone exactly who's, right. Someone who's super visionary can think of those things, but they can't always do the things. Yeah. And that's why they need pragmatists. Mm. So like someone who's in the middle would be someone who's like a really strong visionary and equally pragmatic. They could actually do the things to make the thing happen. Yeah. People who are ultra visionary they can totally see it like someone like Steve Jobs, but they couldn't actually build the things or make the things happen. Yeah. The further along the um, visionary scale people get, the more impatient they get, the harder they are to deal with. They tend to be, um, they tend to be difficult to deal with, not because they're good or bad people, but because they're so far ahead of the conversation and they're like, so into the like, well, no, why don't you get what I'm talking about? Yeah. And so they have to surround themselves with more and more and more pragmatists. Yeah. Um, I view myself as someone who's like, I'm not like visionary on that level, but like when you're talking about, you can get this idea and see it all these different levels, but you can also get impatient. The way my team would describe it is I'm usually like my, I'm striving to be like four feet off the ground or four miles off the ground, but they're trying to keep me four inches off the ground. They yeah. know I need to be off the ground, but they have to hold me down so they can make things actually happen. Yeah. Otherwise I would just like drift off with all the ideas. Yeah. I see that. I, I think the thing that I struggle with is that, um, oh, hold on. I, that's, that's not the right word. I don't struggle. That's, that's, uh, that's not cool. It's, uh, it's uh, the thing I'm blessed with. Mm -hmm. It's actually the other way around. It's not struggle. It's blessed is that, um, I grew up, uh, doing art, you know, again, whether it's, whether I was good at it or not, is not the point. I know like how long it takes paint to dry. I know how, what, like a Sharpie versus Krylon versus airbrush versus, spray paint i took you know i went to college for graphic design and fashion merchandising and things of that nature so i i to this day know photoshop inside and out illustrator inside and out uh, indesign inside and out final cut pro uh, you know premiere i can edit i can like do all that stuff and i can sit down and do board graphics and drop shadows you name it and i can also i know how to draw and as i get older i just find more time and more patience with how to do these things so to a certain degree i enjoy these things that I was able to learn over these years from all the way of being a little street kid that used, you know, Sharpies uh, and paint pens to being, you know, graphic design in college, then having the opportunity to be able to walk through my office and like to have people that were better at me than all those things teach me and show me the ways. Um, so what ends up happening that is a good thing most of the time is especially that I've downsized my life is that I can like think of an idea and actually from top to bottom execute it with my own two hands. And that is a really amazing feeling now that I took for granted for a really long time because I was surrounded by so many people and I had had such great designers and accountants and lawyers and all these things. But what's crazy is that as you get educated, through that process, plus you have the foundation of already knowing how to do a lot of it. It's almost like I went to the school of Harvard of business mm -hmm. and I kind of like finally was able to check myself 
And my wife, I have to give her a lot of credit for this because she was like, you know how to do all that. Why do you have all these other people doing that? You actually know how to do that. You're not, you aren't just a delegator. Like you actually know how to, I always say a hand on the mouse mm -hmm. because I'm like, when I even hire people, I have a problem with like, do you know how to put your hand on the mouse? Like, do you touch the mouse? And most times they don't. I'm like, mm, I'm not feeling that. Mm -hmm. Like you need to touch the mouse. And I, my hand is like glued to a mouse. Mm -hmm. And the mouse meaning it could be a hammer, it could be the mouse itself, but it's sort of a metaphor for uh, if you lose sight of that and you get away from that, I actually believe, and I'd be curious how you feel about this, because there's something about still understanding the, the, the struggle of the craft. Mm -hmm. And so when you walk, march around the office and you start demanding things, especially people that don't, like consultants becomes one of my... I, have a lot of problems often with consultants because I'm like, hold on a minute. You've actually never done this. Mm -hmm. You know, you've actually never been, you're not an entrepreneur. Have you ever been like the EVP of a company on a day to day with like 30 reports and weird emails? And, and then they're just like, no, I've just been, went to whatever, got an MBA and I'm a consultant doing this and that. And I'm like, Okay, well, then all this shit you're trying to tell me to do is completely not valid. Have you ever touched the mouse? Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, but I've seen a lot of them. And, and uh, that for me in my new kind of life, I love the idea of having these crazy ass ideas. And now I've kind of come back to reality and I'm like, and I'm going to, you know, I have people that help me, mm -hmm. but I have no problem you know, climbing in the basement and doing the wiring and the plumbing and, you know, painting the walls and then going back to the, 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 the schematics and the blueprint. And I find a lot of joy in that now. So, and first of all, I'm loving what we're talking about, but if I was to say where you're at today in your process and who you are, would you say you're equally visionary and equally pragmatic? No. What, what, what would you say? I'm definitely more visionary. You're definitely more still visionary. more visionary. Yeah, for sure. Um, what you said about like hand on the mouse. I had a moment just the other day. Um, so I started my company getting close to six years ago. And then before that, I worked for another coaching company that was just a clown car. And when I say a clown car, it's like the potential was there, but just like, it's like how many crazy shitty ideas can come out of one car. Like it's like, this is insane. <laughs> and just like, why, like, why would you do that? And, uh, I, I, like I said to you earlier, like, it's like, I had all this opinion about how shit could be. And then like, it's like, well, okay, I have to start my own company. See how it goes. Now mm. I learned really fast that I like opinion and, and opinion and experience are two different things. Absolutely. So I learned some pretty hard lessons and they're all super good. But the thing that I did learn is like, oh no, I actually do know what I'm talking about. Like I, I know, I know psychology super well. I know I, my craft as a therapist is like totally on point. I can read people. I can help people switch their understanding, like figure out how they want to like create a good culture or lead a good team or, or just become a better um, leader, better person, communicate more effectively. All of that stuff I'm good at, but can I lead a, a group of people? Can I build up a company and do it in a way where it's like, no, this is actually, I would want to work here. This is cool. Like, yeah. it's almost like a musician saying like, I want to be in a band. Um, this guy, Todd Jones, who plays in a band called Nails now. Someone asked him, why did you start Nails? He's like, oh, I just wanted to be in a band that I would listen to. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so like, That's a great, yeah. is this 100%. a company that I want to work in? Yeah. It's cool. 
but I had a moment the other day where I'm kind of being pushed out of the coaching work now and um, I'm doing more uh, just like running the business, kind of like thinking, thinking in, into the future. I'm doing more stuff like podcasting, working on a book, all of that kind of stuff. And I had this moment of just real deal coaching moment. And one of my team was on a call with me and I was coaching a CEO who was um, scaling up a company. Uh, I won't get too into the details, scaling up a company. And he'd gotten a 360 feed, uh, feedback report and there was some like harsh stuff in there, like sure. harsh. <laughs> and I just walked him through it. I was like, hey, it depends on what you're doing. What's your horizon? Are you going to stay in the company? Are you going to sell like this and that? And I just decoded it down for him. I was like, this is exactly what you need to do. And you could see the sigh of relief for him. It was like, oh, I thought you were going to give me some crazy consultant mumbo jumbo, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, like, dude, I'm like, yeah. I play in a punk band. Like, I'm here to help you figure out what you want to do as a leader. So you do the right things. Just because you've gotten this feedback doesn't mean you have to do something crazy with it, but it just helps you govern your business. Yeah. And I had this moment where I was like, Whew, I'm not full of shit. Like I could, st I still put in using yeah. your terminology, I could still put my hand on the mouse. Like yeah. I can still do this, even though I do it less and less. Yeah. And afterwards I got off the call with my, uh, my teammate and they were like, damn, like you really flex some coaching skills there. I hadn't seen you do that. And I was like, honestly, I, it had been such a long time since I'd been in that kind of conversation. I was psyched that I could still pull it off yeah. and that I, I still know what I'm talking about. But I think you could relate to this as your company gets bigger and it changes, you lose your ability to be in the day-to-day -day work. Yeah. And that can, it doesn't make you a bad leader, but it kind of changes the way you engage with the work in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. There's no question. Um, it's funny because, you know, I've been really lucky to uh, have experienced, you know, startup mentality all the way to like publicly traded private private equity, you know, all this kind of wild ass business sort of adventure, I suppose. And um I think it's it's difficult to like stay connected to the day-to-day. -day. It, it it really can be. Um I think, you know, it's funny because this this conversation could go so many di different directions. Uh, a couple things that come came to my mind when you were talking was one I think it's really uh, when you start your own business with your own money, mm -hmm. right? And you don't kind of like you said, you you had a big reality check of like going and doing your own thing. One thing I think when it comes to like business and whether you work for a company or you're, you know, to what we're talking about being a leader within a company, if you start your own business and you start it with your own cash or, you know, you're borrowing money and it's just like everything's on the line. I think that you carry that with you forever, mm -hmm. forever. And, and so even when um, the companies I've been involved with or started or whatever the case might be, no matter how big or small, you know, some went out of business, um, some got big. But no matter what, every time I've ever been engaged with a company, even other people's companies, I look at it, I can't help myself that it's like, you're scraping pennies together. You're going to go out of business the following day. So for example, I used to go to work every day. And to this day, I go to work every day like it's the last fucking day of work. Like I'm like, holy crap, if I make a bad decision today, if anything goes wrong, you know, this might all be gone tomorrow. I come from not a lot of money, a pretty uh, struggling background. So I always have this like heavy fear of going backwards and what that might look like. And I don't want to be there and I don't want my employees to be there. But again, 
it, it really, to me, where I'm going with this is that it makes me always feel like I've got to stay really connected like keep the tool belt on yeah yeah, yeah. like keep your fucking tool belt on like don't get comfortable because you mm -hmm. might need to reach out and grab that hammer and shit might come undone real quick <laughs> so i think anybody that takes their tool belt off and doesn't dust that shit off is like they got another thing coming and so i try to personally and i've seen myself you know because it's been a long road uh get away from that and like loosen up the tool belt and think I'm going to set it down. And then, um, I realize I shouldn't. Um, so I think it's really important and you get a lot of respect to, and respect, not just you, that you need that by the way, because you don't necessarily need it. Um, staying in the trenches a bit. And I think that this is a bold statement. Um, and I'm, I'm surprised I'm going to talk about this. I have an issue with like, leaders that you know sit at the end of the table uh make sure you know they walk in a room and, and you kind of already know something's up when i go to a company this just happened recently and i walk into i i intentionally do this by the way i used to sit at the end of the table so i had that disease mm -hmm. i i struggled and i would I'd be like why how dare that person is sitting at the end of the table like what who is this new guy he's sitting at the end of the table that's my seat <laughs> Like, what the hell? Like, who can think like that? I, I thought like that. Like, I actually had that problem. I, I, I admit it. But now I go, <laughs> I'll go to a meeting. And I just did this recently. I went to a meeting. There was like, what are 15 people in this meeting? I walk in the room and I was a little late. I like ran to the bathroom or something and came back in, had to get my coffee or whatever. And I go in and I'm like, there's, <laughs> there's an empty seat at the end of the table here. And then there's an empty seat at the end of the table there, like one for the big guy and one for the other big guy, which yeah. is me. Right. So I walk in and I'm like, I don't want to sit there. And these people have already been trained because clearly their boss has them sitting so he can have the throne. Mm -hmm. And so immediately I was like, ah, oh, you guys like, Kind of, kind of scoot over. I want to sit like I don't want. I want to be able to see everybody, and I don't like my back against the door or whatever. I excuse I made up, but I didn't want to sit at the end of the table. And then the person who I I just requested to scoot on, like kind of create a scoot on down situation, was pretty uncomfortable because now he's like face to face, <laughs> and I'm sure his boss is like, "Why is he sitting there? Why am I looking at this dude who's like whatever my, uh, you know, my my assistant's assistant, and now he's at the end of why is Johnny over there?" And I just immediately, like, it just helps me understand the, the culture mm -hmm. uh, in there. And clearly that person may have put their tool belt down. Yeah. Um, I got to point something out to you. And I do it. And most people do it. It's like, you know, there's like a voice you put on when you're being like the lame version or like that. I call it my idiot voice when I'm like, blah, blah, blah. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you're like, how dare this person? <laughs> totally. I like, I love the voice because it's like, you know, you're telling a story where you're like, either like, oh God, I can't believe I acted like that. Or I can't believe someone acted like that. Yeah. And like the voice for me is always this thing for me where it's like, whatever the people, people I call it my idiot voice. Because <laughs> it's like, it's like either me acting like an idiot or someone else. Um, I like that. It's like a clear differentiation of like, this is not who I am now. So I'm going to take on a different voice. It becomes a caricature where we're like, get out of here. I got to use that. That's, that's an epic thing. Cause I <laughs> definitely do that. And it's funny for the record. Cause I, you know, whoever's listening to this, the person I was, <laughs> whatever, 10, 15, 20 years ago, there's been so many cycles of who I am with business, especially, but even as a, as an adult and a parent and so on. But I do, it's, it's, it's been a really interesting 
sometimes shameful uh, and, and definitely embarrassing because <laughs> I look back and I'm like, wow. And when you run a big company, there's so many witnesses to your idiocy, right? You're like, fuck, all these people saw that. Like, that's like if you're in a movie that's like a, a number one hit and you're like, wow, that movie sucked. But it's like number one on the box office. It's your worst thing you ever did. And you're just selling out theaters and your bad acting job. And uh, with with work, I look back on some of like some of my most defining moments and even like with Element, like where it will, maybe even sometimes when it was the most successful. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man. I really have, well, maybe regressed. I don't know if it's evolved or regressed, but I have changed in many ways. Um, and I laugh at it. I laugh at it. I have to laugh. Well, dude, uh, that's like, you're figuring it out on the biggest stage, right? <laughs> totally. Like, it's exactly right. It's like, I'm just trying to figure out how to do this, but in front of all of you. And like, I, when he said that, I just thought of the first company retreat that we ever did with the, the, the company that I, that I run was on uh, Balboa Island. Yeah. And I had all these notes and I was all prepared and I'd been like, I'd been a professional at that point for, I don't know, like, let's say 16 years, but I'd never ran my own thing, but I played in bands. I'd done all this stuff. Like I'm used to being in front of people and we do this first day of the session and it's me and my newly formed team. I think there was three other people there four four people in total in this house at Balboa. And afterwards I say to one of my coworkers is a really uh, wonderful person named Jerry. I said, Jerry, how was it? She's like, well, uh, you definitely talked at us for about six hours. And I was like, <laughs> Oh God, <laughs> it's yeah. so terrible. I still do that. Oh, uh, you know, though, it's like you, you just, you're trying to figure it out. And yeah. it was such good feedback. She was like, it was really cool. And it was punishing. Cause like it was, they're all cool ideas but you're way too much in the visionary space. You're talking like five years out when it's like year 1.5 of the company. Right. Like, and she gave me really cool feedback. And again, it's that, well, not again, for this podcast, the first time we're talking about that super importance of having like really real people around you who will give you total honest uh, feedback absolutely. and your ability to hear it. Yes. Um, but I love what you said where you're like, oh God, my most embarrassing moments are in front of all these people. Yeah. But it's cool because you can change. Now, I did want to take take a step back. Sure. Also in your intro, the other thing that you seemed uncomfortable about, you're like, I guess I'm a business person. <laughs> so it's like both an artist and a business person. And that's such an important part of your story. Do you mind if we start talking into that? Absolutely. Go ahead. Okay. So why don't you tell us about uh, Element Skateboards? Mm -hmm. And um, it's maybe let's go a little bit further back, but knowing that we're going to go into this. Tell us about growing up mm. and how and where you grew up led to what you did professionally. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a loaded question. And I can try to do the short version if it's possible. You can uh, do whatever, ver whatever you, wherever you want to go with this and whatever you want to admit or bring in, I'm totally cool with. Sure. Um, well, uh, I grew up with pretty dysfunctional family. Um, my parents got divorced at a, a really young age. Um, and my dad was a, a, a hardcore alcoholic. Um, and my parents just had a lot of, there was just a lot going on there, right? So then I became a kid that grew up I guess they'd call it a latchkey kid, but for the most part, bouncing back and forth between my mother and father, depending on which family was more dysfunctional. Mm. So the truth would be that if my mother's side of the 
family when I was living with my mom, let's say, was highly dysfunctional, which it most often was, then I would be go and live with my father. Mm -hmm. And then that would be highly dysfunctional. And then I would go live with my mom again or or go live with a family member or just live on live off like couch surfing or whatever as I got older. Um, and I think that uh, combined with one other thing, I think that's kind of as I reflect back on my my youth, that things that kind of shaped me to be unsuccessful as a human and successful. Uh, the other thing is my dad was in the military. So with that, all this moving around even internally between my family and all that dysfunction. The other thing that was happening was we were literally moving around the world because my dad was in the military. Mm -hmm. So I lived in Germany for five years. I lived in Oregon. I lived in New Hampshire. I lived in Virginia Beach. I lived in Atlanta. I've lived in California. I've lived in um, Ohio. Uh, I went to three different junior highs, three different high schools. And really just within moving internally, so let's just say I lived in Virginia for three years. I lived between my mother and my father on the street all over within those three years within Virginia. Right, right. So like there was just this constant like nomadic behavior that I had become accustomed to. So with that, my sort of skills with people were very sharp. Mm -hmm. They became very sharp because I... I had to be, I had to constantly adapt. And I was like always the new kid, always the stranger, always uh, just everything was constantly new to me. Um, and then on top of that, as, especially as time went on, um, you know, we didn't have money. Um, I didn't, wasn't able to, to have nice things. Um, and uh, as I, as this all went down, I think the part where we're going with this is that I ended up after all this sort of moving around, for some reason I call, and it's kind of weird because it's not entirely factual because I, I say I'm from New York when people will say, where are you from? I've lived out in California now for a really long time. I lived all over the world as a kid, but I spent the majority of my high school days in New York. And with that, I just started calling myself a New Yorker. I felt like I connected most, I suppose, with New York. Um, both New York City and upstate the countryside, upstate New York, White Plains, um, Albany, uh, Schenectady, Syracuse, all the way to like Brooklyn and being in the city and skating the Brooklyn Banks and all that cool New York City stuff that people talk about. And all this was like throughout the 80s. But um, what what came from all that is that when I was very young, uh, really four years old, my sister was a skater in the seventies. And she, through everything I had just described, she gave me her hand-me-down skateboard when I was four. And I don't know if it was because of like the size of it, even like we can get into some like actual, like, like why did this thing go around with me? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing that's super random that, you know, again, these are things I've been able to look back on and say, okay, well, what if I had gotten into baseball, let's say, I would have had to have joined a team and then like my parents, which would, this wouldn't have happened, would have had to drive me to practice every day. And there would have been equipment involved and fees and things like that. And a team, you know, just the whole thing is totally unrealistic with what I just described as my childhood. So you take any sport, any sport, and you try to plug it into what I had to go through as a kid. 
And I don't think anything would have made sense or been a reality. On top of that, a skateboard is like this little thing. You can just put it in your bag, I suppose, and like just carry it around with you. You don't have to change your clothes. And, you know, there was all these, I didn't really think much about that until I got older. Like, oh, well, maybe that's why I kept skating because anything else wouldn't have made any kind of sense. I wouldn't have been able to do it. And so thank God I picked up a skateboard when I was four and just started tic-tacking around and, you know, we'd move and I'd be like, all right, did, did I pack my skateboard? Like, that's all I can take with me because I got to go stay with dad for the for next four days. And I got to go move to New York now. And like, I got to live out of a fucking duffel bag for the next 10, 15 years or whatever the heck that was. So I got this skateboard and everywhere I would go, especially as I got older, there was a community and there were people there and there was, you know, skate at that time, there weren't skate parks, there were skate spots. And I would like start going and hanging out and whether it was Virginia or New York or even New Hampshire, for gosh sakes, all these things, there was always like a, a like a micro skate scene. And because of that, if everything I described of having to adapt and get used to being the new high school kid and all, and it was so difficult like to get in there with like whatever the jocks and the popular kids or what, but skateboarding was like communal. So like even now I don't, I barely know anyone I went to high school with mm -hmm. or junior high. Like I, I there's a few people out there. I could like literally count them on this hand. And I still like, it's funny. I to, I like Instagram. I still DM and talk to some of these people. So uh, I've got to do a shout out to Manuel Bandy and and X Man and there's like people that I that like were not actually skate people they were like different it was different and there were very few of those because it was all skaters like it was just skate community so I would just leave high school like not, not know a soul and just go downtown and be with a bunch of skaters from all different high schools that had to a certain degree similar backgrounds um, so in a nutshell. That is like my kind of upbringing. Uh, the only other thing I'd say, and we talked about this earlier, was music was a huge factor in all of this because I got really deep into hip hop and punk rock and had a really strong connection, especially with hip hop and reggae. I, I definitely like punk rock music, um, but I was really, and maybe this, again, going back to like reflecting on it, it was maybe too aggressive and too like chaotic for me because I was so much chaos in my own life that maybe a mosh pit was almost too much for me. Although I went, I was in plenty of them and went to plenty of punk, plenty of punk rock shows because the hip hop shows were within the punk rock shows back then. So um, I loved rap. I loved hip hop. And that also became a big part of like this life that I'm describing. But in the same breath, because I love that, that kind of street lifestyle and that skate lifestyle, there's no question I got mixed up in a lot of other stuff that was not so hot, not so cool. And I was around a lot of rough, rough things between being in my house that was incredibly rough and then being in the streets with skateboarding in the 80s in New York or in mostly urban environments, that also was rough. And we had talked about this earlier, like real lots of street smart starting to happen because you have to have that. like being skating in the Bronx, the Bronx banks, not the Brooklyn banks, the Bronx banks in the eighties, um, or skating the Brooklyn banks in the eighties or upstate New York in, in uh, Albany, you had to have a lot of street smart because you were dealing with a lot of crazy stuff. And you kind of combine that with the punk rock hip hop community and you start getting, uh, a lot of character building. Right. So 
kind of fast forward um, with with uh, I'm skipping over college and all that stuff because I want to get to Element. Um, what happened with Element was more so that I had such a crazy taste in my mouth of like, wow, this culture is pretty fucked up. Like I have had friends that died. I've saw things that were crazy. The fact that like drinking and drugs and partying and pretty much like wildly out of control shit happening within the skateboard community. Um, and that's okay. Like I understand a lot of it. I participated in a lot of it too. But there was a time as I got older and I had seen so much loss and pain, especially within my own personal life, that I and I would I'd become a bit of a workaholic, and maybe that's something we can talk about if you if you want. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, okay. At that point, I was an artist, and I talked about that earlier. And I was doing a lot of art and doing. I was a good skater. I had been sponsored. I I knew what it was like to travel. Um, I knew the skate community inside and out, plus music, and and then I had a lot of good friends and lots of great connections because of all this traveling, whether it was through skateboarding or even through moving around so much. I just had developed relationships everywhere. And back to being a curator, uh, I was like, if I curate something now, I need to do it differently. Like, I don't want to be responsible for all the shit that's going on right now. Like, it's basically screwed up my life. Mm -hmm. And I thought what was funny about it, I I've been talking about this a lot recently, is, and I don't like bringing up the word poser. Poser's weird. Mm -hmm. But so many people want to get close to a culture that they actually need to be further away from, mm. right? Like, like if you're part of like hip hop's a good example, but skateboarding for sure. Like there's so much stuff about like gnarly skate stuff that like you, we kind of need to clean it up, but the people from the outside, it becomes somewhat attractive. And so they want to get in and like, you're like, no, 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 no. We're trying to get out. Like you should be wanting to pull us out, not push us in. Yeah, yeah. And that gets back to like that corporate culture because they're like, oh, we want to buy this company. It's super rad. And it's got, you know, this and that. And you're like, hold on, guys. I was kind of hoping you'd come in here and help fix it, not make it worse. Yeah, yeah. So uh, with Element, it was like, I want to build a brand that we are getting out and, and becoming better people and we're leading by example and we're doing things that are positive because I'm such a workaholic and my whole life is work. If I don't incorporate something into my work, then it won't become a reality in my life mm -hmm. because it has to be part of my work, especially back then. So I was like, okay, well, if I need to change, I'm going to change it through my daily activities in the office. So if I'm going to be doing things that needs to be positive and can't be like, negative at work because i'm part of the skate community and things are super gnarly and we got to make it like raw and then i'm going to go home and like meditate and do yoga and drink drink don't drink alcohol anymore and like make smoothies and then go back to work and be like i'm gnarly you know like that's kind of like what what would have been the choice right and i said i'm going to do something and make make big change and that was like sort of the the catapult to like the the dna and what what element was for me and what I needed to leave behind. Um, and I remember a lot of people, and this, by the way, I, I, I mean, like I said earlier, I talk a lot. 
I find it so fascinating that no matter how much success people have, that whether it's skating or business, that people continue to think that it's a bad idea. I find that just one of the most fascinating things. And I try so hard to put myself in the other person's uh, foot, like position. That, that what's a bad idea? Like, like starting element. Hmm. So, so what I'm saying is it was such a, a, a different perspective on skateboarding. Right. And then the fact that everyone was like, hold on, you're going to do what? And this is what? And like, and you're like, yeah, why would, why? Like, doesn't, it, doesn't that make sense? And they're like, no, like, and the amount of team riders and partners and things throughout my life that people like exit, exit or like aren't into it and leave or question and stay and question and stay. And then you're like, Hey, you've been here for this long. You're still questioning us. Yeah. Like, didn't your check clear? Mm-hmm. Like, so last time I checked the money's still hard, correct? Yeah. But it's still a bad idea. Well, then get the fuck out. Yeah. So I don't know. I just, deviated. wait, can I, can I hit on that, man? Sure. You know, I was talking about my old company, mm-hmm. and I, the old company I worked at. I was like this total clown car. I was the worst version of what you just said, though, right? Like, I'm this dude in there that's like, this is bullshit. <laughs> we shouldn't do this. Bad culture. And I wasn't wrong. Like, I wasn't wrong. But I also was only filled with opinion. Zero percent experience yeah, yeah. running an actual real deal business. It's great you, you can gotta, admit that. Oh, it. It took me a long time to get here. And like, I think I only really got here in the past couple of years, like Mm. with a lot of reflection is that like my old boss, I think is just a shitty person. Don't Mm. like him. Saw him. We probably have negative words. Just don't think he's a good guy. However, who's shittier? That guy for running a company that I, that I had, I feel were practical concerns about or me staying at that company for five years, hating it made me miserable being there. I was super depressed, probably not the most unhappy part of my life, but it's what set the stage for my most unhappy part of my life. Um, Complained about it, negative, always questioning everything. It's like, hey man, like if you hate it so much, why don't you just leave? And in fact, why don't you leave right now? Or why don't you leave next week? Or why don't you leave next year? But instead to stay and stay and take yeah. up space, be negative. And I'd like to say that I, I was helping set the company up for what I think they've gone on to become and which I believe is a better company. I think I might've played some role in that. Or maybe that's just my ego saying like, <laughs> hey, you were, you were helping them become a better company. And I can't say whether or not they are a better company, but my rationale at the time was like, I'm gonna have the hard conversations. I'm gonna point out the flaws. I'm gonna do this stuff. I'm gonna help them change. Yo, it's not your company, man. Like, why are you staying here? Why are you being that squeaky wheel that no matter how much grease gets put on there, they're still squeaking. And one of the things I guess is to suggest to people who are listening here, it's like, hey, like there's nothing wrong with thinking your company's not cool. Like there's problems with your company and there's nothing wrong with bringing up challenges and to work to, to make them better. But maybe the question you should ask, start with is, Will I actually be okay here? Will I ever be happy with this? Or will it be problem after problem after problem? Because maybe I'm not supposed to do this. Or maybe I'm not supposed to here be here. Because if you're staying, if everything's an issue for you, but the money's okay, then who's really the bad guy here? That's right. And I, I w- the reason I'm pointing this out is what you said is like, um, I had such a reality check about that a few years ago where, you know, I had a, a challenge with an employee and I was really thinking about it. I was like, you know what, until you get behind the steering wheel and you 
put your own money in, you take your own risk. It's hard to understand yeah. what it really means to run a company and why things happen. Up until that point, you can have a lot of opinions and those opinions can be totally cool. But if you choose to stay, stay in a positive way, help things happen, bring up ideas, listen to the explanation, work for change. And if you can't be in that space, then you probably just shouldn't be there. You should probably head, head out. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm stepping out of your story there, but it was, I think it was such an important thing to hear. And I also want to be vulnerable and be honest that I've been that, I've been that dude yeah. in a company. Well, a great quote that actually an employee had told me um, was, if you don't like something, stick around long enough to fix it. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's a, a great way to look at things. And I, I believe like what, you know, I know I've steered away from the original question, but um, gratitude is huge. And I think that like, that's something that has taken me a long time and I'm still on a, on a crazy personal journey with these type of things. But what I find with what we're talking about is that, and this is, you know, to the, to the listeners, cause you know, it's like as I'm talking, I forget so many people would be listening to this, but I think a, a really important self-reflection that people should do, especially in your professional environment, but this applies to personal life too, is that, and I, there are so many employees that I can think of that had this sort of hang up, but you need to like, I believe in the glass half full situation is, is that it's important to look at what's going on around you and first like, look at what's good. Like, okay, these people are paying me. I have a job. Mm -hmm. um, I applied for a job here. They, I came to them most often. They, I dreamed of working here. Mm -hmm. I went there hoping they would accept me, and they did. Mm -hmm. I should be grateful for that. Mm -hmm. The check is good. I should be grateful for that. Even though my boss might be an asshole, he's here. Mm -hmm. He came to work today. Mm -hmm. Like he's present. He is involved with the company. He has an opinion. He makes decisions. People don't understand how hard it is to make a decision. <laughs> I mean, I find it, I think, you know, if I were to say, if someone were to say, what's your ba uh, most strongest business attribute? I'd say, I'm not afraid to make decisions. Mm -hmm. I, I, if anything, I, am, I make decisions. Mm -hmm. Right or wrong, I'm not afraid to make them. And oftentimes I will sit and look at someone and be like, well, what do you want to do? Like make a decision. And I'm, I'm actually flabbergasted by how often people cannot make decisions and they're terrified and they'll be like, I don't know. Well, what do you think? And I'm like, I say, no, I say no too. And you're like, oh man, come on, <laughs> give me a break. Like I want, so, so I guess what I'm saying, I've got to the gratitude Good. is that it's really important to, and I try to do this every day now of like, okay, well, that's, that sucks. Like, I'm not stoked on that. But at the same time, like, back up. How's my life? Like, like, how is my actual life right now? Like, let's go bigger and think broader. How's my life? Mm, okay, I got up this morning. I'm healthy. Mm -hmm. I have, I didn't fight with my wife, let's say, and we had a great morning and we kissed each other when we went off to do our thing, hugged my kids, I'm not stressed out, generally speaking. Um, and, and, you know, you just kind of go through the life tick list. And then I'm like, so do I really give a shit about that situation at work because this the, the person's doing this or that? Like, the world is sort of operating in a way currently for me or whomever I'm talking about. This is like this reflection that someone should do real quick and be like, okay, before I go crazy in this meeting, let's check everything. Not just this meeting, everything. 
because the universe is working in a particular way where you're like, hold on a minute, what's this really about? Is my life okay, <laughs> first and foremost? Because you can't change other people's lives until your life's okay. So is my life okay? Yeah, actually today's a really good day. Fuck it, I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. Yeah. Or yeah. apply good good things to the situation and not like be like, eh, I don't like this and I don't like that. Because really like step back and be like, I, w I wish I, you know, I look back on so many moments and I wish I could look, because again, as an evolution of a, as a human, I wish I could look back at some of those people and be like, hold on a minute. How's your day going? Mm -hmm. What's going on in your life? Didn't you just get custody of your kid and like, like things are looking pretty good. And I just thought, didn't you just get a new car? Like, bro, pump the brakes. Mm -hmm. Something we're doing is working here. Something you're doing is working here. And I, I really believe it's all kind of intertwined now. Like, like it, you'll climb out, like if it's something at work that's going like in a bad way, I kind of feel like the whole universe has to sort of be in harmony to get out of to get out of that hole. And it's not just in the office because yeah. everybody has to be working with each other on all sides, 360 degrees for it to to elevate itself into success. Yeah. Could I give you a, a term to consider uh, sure. in, in that one? Um, just as a funny thing, it's like I what you're talking about is like I, I believe I've it's something I've been working on is like you know, positive mindset. And especially since starting my own company and really being like having a hold of a mirror and being like, Jesus, you know, like, mm -hmm. all right, now I really got to put my money where my mouth is like literally. <laughs> um, yeah. I've gotten way better, like way better of like kind of sitting there, like kind of having the gratitude. But just the other day, literally just the other day, I was in a meeting, I was sounding off, I'm being negative. I'm kind of like, like stomping my foot, you know, like, like, you know, yeah. being all like pissy about something. And I got off the call and I was like, that wasn't productive. And we had a, a consultant who's working with our company. So we're a consulting firm who has a consultant come in and with helping us with some financial stuff. And I got off that call and I was like, that's not who I am today. That's like, uh, yeah. maybe who I was seven years ago. Yeah. Why did that person come in? So I'll bring in a, the term I was talking about. Have you ever heard the term target fixation? Mm -mm. It's a World War One term um, when planes started becoming like aerial combat became a thing. Um, pilots would get fixated on on shooting down another plane and they would forget their environment and they would like fly into the ground or like fly into a cliff or fly into fly too low and get shot down by like uh, ground forces because they would forget all of their other environment. All they would care about is trying to get that other thing. So when I talk about target fixation, I talk, I, I use it um, uh, in what you're talking about. It's like, yo, like, why are you freaking out about this financial thing? Like, take a step back, look around you. Like, your life is sick. There are a lot of cool things going on. You meet wonderful people. You've made positive changes. This thing matters, but it doesn't matter to the degree you're putting overt focus on it. You're getting, you're getting target fixation on mm -hmm. it. And you're flying into the cliff or you're flying into the enemy, enemy fire, which is the thing that fucks up your life. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, it's true. It, it completely, especially with other employees, they, they would, uh, yeah, they, they'll just point out a particular flaw that just completely is on the scale of what we're trying to achieve is not great. And then, and yeah, they're just, they're not uh, having gratitude for the, the bigger picture, mm -hmm. you know? So that, that's, that's been, um, that's a good takeaway. Actually, I like that. I have target fixation now because of getting um, having our boards in target, and I'm very fixated on that. So I know what target fixation <laughs> is when it comes to business. No, man. <laughs> yeah, like dude, when we take a think about gratitude, like 
and you know something we were talking about earlier and we were joking about on the break it's like so grateful for and i'm laughing about it because i'm gonna stop i actually am very grateful for all the stuff i'm grateful to be sitting here with you today i'm yeah. super psyched on, on the company get to do these things but also as a boss you're like there are days where it's like, God, it would be so much easier to work for someone else. <laughs> Knowing what I know now, it would be easier to work yeah. for someone else. Yeah. Well, you know what can be hard, too, is that uh, for in my situation, for many years, I worked for myself, started my own stuff, had great partners and terrible partners, but we were privately held. It was my own business. And I know what that feels like to be responsible for your own decisions. And then to then be sell your business or be part of a public company or private, part of private equity it's a it's a bit of a bait and switch because you think you own your company, you think you're the CEO, you think you're the president, you think you're the boss, and you're like, oh, this freedom is sick. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I don't have freedom. Like this is like, I gotta do this and I gotta do that. I gotta like speak to shareholders and make sure that these guys are stoked. And then uh so I know what it's like to work for yourself for sure with your own money, and then work for someone else where you're kind of a puppet. You know, like you, you sort of work for yourself, but you kind of don't because if you make the wrong step or move, you get called out. And then going back to my current life, working 100% for myself again, um, it's it's a really interesting dynamic because I can reflect back on on being part of a, a larger organization and what what that might look like being a fake boss, mm -hmm. right? Totally. Well, so let's go back uh, with Element you know, you make this move, you make this decision. Mm -hmm. And what, from a business perspective, what was the, what were the early days of Element like? Uh, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, it's funny because first off, a lot of struggle, a lot of politics, lots of struggle. Uh, definitely at the time, Element came out. So I, I look back on the fact that we did it in the early 90s and that's a really in skateboarding was like the worst time ever. Like as companies were just going out of business and skateboarding was just plummeting back when like it was sort of that era when skateboard wheels were tiny and like skateboarding tricks were like low to the ground and the economy was crashing and skateboarding just wasn't that attractive because it was just going into a like a, 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 a almost like a look. And, uh, you know, because as tricks change, like people go really high and do big airs and like, let's say vert's really popular then like the masses are like, whoa, that's really cool. I want to look at that. And skateboarding gets popular. Well, skateboarding was going through a period where it was like cool to skaters, but the outside world didn't have much interest, interest in it. So the early days of Element, because it had started in the early 90s, it was a very, it was a struggle, like from a financial standpoint, from like the outside world, even like people around me, like you do what? Like you're going to make a living doing what? So there was a, a level of that from non-skaters, family, non-skaters, et cetera. Then there was just a level of that within like just business was terrible. Um, but also the early days of Element too, because skateboarding was very kind of what I was explaining earlier. It was very street, mm -hmm. street skating for one, but also just street, like the brands and the magazines, whether it be Thrasher or Big Brother magazine, and these things that were happening inside skateboarding were the antithesis of Element. Like we could not, the, the the difference between who we were and what we were trying to do as a brand and what the industry was doing, we got a lot of hate. You know, we got a lot of hate. People thought I was like, just, you know, on a judgment level for me, 
uh, I was called a poser often because one, I was coming from like being like a shut New York, New York kind of guy. And all of a sudden I'm like hippy dippy element, save the earth. And people didn't kind of realize I'd like really gone through a big transition as a person. Um, and that that was in my life, at least at that time, that was real to me mm -hmm. um, and the brand. So we had a big kind of disconnect with the industry at the time. Um, so that was rough because everything was pretty, pretty hardcore. And we were very like just earthy, yeah. you know, an earthy brand. And that that was really hard, along with the fact that especially I was element was part of like an industry that just didn't see it the, the way I saw it. And that, that was tough even with the team writers. I have to give the team writers a lot of props because what, what had happened that maybe I wasn't nearly as aware of then that I am now. And I mean, I'm glad they all stayed on the, most of them stayed on the team and we had like a great thing going, but what that I didn't really know was happening is that to a certain degree, that level of bullying, let's call it, or, or, uh, people kind of hating on the brand in the beginning, they had to endure that. Mm -hmm. So they were being loyal to the brand and loyal to myself. And they were catching a lot of shit in the industry. Like you should write for this brand, not that brand and la la la. And they would stay. And so there was a lot of, uh, of, of hates a strong word, but there was, it was tough in the beginning. Um, and then, you know, I was, uh, poor, <laughs> I was already poor to be but prior to that. And I was poor when we were doing it. So I remember I was living in a, well, one, I, when element had started, I was living in the office, mm -hmm. but even when I eventually, I lived in a studio apartment, I didn't have a car. I took the bus to work, um, had no money. Um, and then any type of money that I had was just being poured back into either the company or just barely getting by. Uh, could I ask you a practical question? Sure. Um, first and only what you're comfortable sharing, like, how did you, cause you said you didn't have any money, you didn't come from money. How did you found it financially? Well, uh, the good, the beautiful news is that two individuals that are, I owe so much to, or, or I'm super grateful for is Paul Schmidt and, um, Steve Douglas. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Paul Schmidt had PS sticks, which is a wood manufacturer. And Steve Douglas was part of new deal and uh, a whole bunch of other skateboard brands, um, throughout his life. And I wrote for New Deal. I was one of my sponsors when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And Paul had this wood shop. And so to a certain degree, they floated it. You know, they floated the business. And so Paul, because he was able to make all those boards, um, they floated the whole company. Mm -hmm. And that is how things got kicked off in the beginning. And it was tiny. Yeah. I mean, just tiny. And, and, and Paul and Steve were, it's funny because, you know, I can joke around because I got paid like nothing. But they were nice enough to like let, especially Paul, with, with, with respect to that wood shop. I mean, he just carried so, not just element. Paul Schmidt, and I, I want to give this guy a lot of credit. Paul Schmidt, on the, on, sort of on the down low, has carried so many skateboard companies for so many years behind the scenes. He would always say, you know, and I never quite understood it until now that I'm older, but he was the facilitator. Mm -hmm. That's what he called himself. And it's true. Paul just was like so kind and had done so well through having his wood shop that he had the the means to let people pay their bills really late and in many cases not ever even pay them. Yeah. So Paul just floated many companies and Element being one of those companies where he was just very generous 
with that. And at the time, Element just made skateboards. Yeah. So that was kind of easy. Yeah. You just don't pay Paul till you have the money. <laughs> <laughs> right? And that worked. And um, that was amazing. And Paul, to this day, should get credit for that because he did it. I'm not going to mention the brands. And I mean, to this day, mm. he still does it. Right, right. And that's just out of the kindness of his heart and how much he loves skateboarding. He has been the incubator mm. of countless skateboard brands and entrepreneurs. Yeah. So did you have a um, blueprint of how to like start a company uh, essentially? Cause you know, you've been around a lot, you've been sponsored. So like, how did you figure out like, well, how do I get distribution? Like, how do I market? Like, how do I like, get ad space? How do I get people to even know about this brand? W was there a little bit of a blueprint or were you just figuring it out as you went along? Um, you know, the big thing would be, you know, back to Steve and Paul, they, Steve Douglas was extremely um, educated in international affairs. Mm -hmm. He's from England. Mm -hmm. And so he had, Steve was a professional skateboarder and he had traveled all over the world. And the fact that he, uh, was from England. He had like a really, uh, a lot of like love for Europe. And so Steve had already had a lot of like nice connections in Europe. But, but again, it's very important to state that skateboarding was tiny. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when I tell the story, people start imagining like distribution centers and skate shops everywhere. And yeah. you know, the way skating is today, we're talking like people like literally had like a garage in like New Zealand and they would like open up the back and like huck huck skateboards out of the back. I mean, yeah. it was so like entrepreneurial and startup style and on all levels of skateboarding back then, it was crazy. There was no X Games, there was no Olympics and skateboarding and commercials, like none of that shit. So uh, we had an international presence because Steve made that possible. Um, I had gone to college. I mean, that's something that, that's kind of weird. I don't talk a lot about having an education because in our industry, it's not that common. Mm -hmm. So I was educated. So and I what did you do in college? I studied uh, graphic design, merchandising, and uh, illustration, fashion illustration. And I graduated with, it's called a visual communications at the Art Institute of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So I did know how to use computers. I did know how to I knew about marketing. I did have a level of education. Plus, I worked my whole life. I worked at skate shops. I like knew about silk screening. I knew about like, you know, I, I was a sponsored skater too. Mm -hmm. So I knew about graphics. I knew about like traveling and working it with sponsors and being at a shop and being like, hey, you should carry this brand. And I was hucking the brands. I, you know, I was like to the sponsors that I had at the time, I was like one of their favorite team riders, not because I was the best skater, because I was really good at like going into a shop and being like, hey, why don't you have New Deal boards here? You should have New Deal boards and go do the demo and then be like, oh, everybody here, buy a New Deal board. You know, I was just that kind of guy. Um, and so that gave me the, I think, awareness to, uh, and I, I mentioned this and I, I, I was in music and kind of around the hip hop industry and kind of saw like I'd done some, a uh, lot of graphic design and work inside the music industry. Plus I interned at a graphic design studio and our number one account was Coca-Cola. So I, I had these things that like were very uncommon mm -hmm. to like a, a street skater, yeah. like kid from New York. And so I applied all that to answer your question into the business and kind of stumbled along the way and really just mirrored a lot of my favorite companies too. Um, I should mention that uh, Rodney Smith 
Bruno Musso and this guy by the name of Nick Hartman were these three individuals on the East Coast that were like pioneers of skateboarding. And I watched these guys like a hawk, especially Rodney Smith and Nick. Um, and everything they did, I just found I was very fascinated by the management of skateboard companies. Like Nick was like a, like just a great, he, he ran a skate shop called Concrete Beach out of Albany, New York at the time. And Rodney and Bruno were the founders of Shet Skates, which then later became Zoo York. And I skated with those guys and the Shet team all the time. And I was fascinated by how Rodney and Bruno kept the scene just so tight and how they treated the riders and how Shut was like dominating New York and the East Coast at the time. And so I, I actually had a really big impact on me. And so when I went on to do Element and many other companies, uh, I always had this in my brain of like, this is how these guys do it. This is how they ran a team that was borderline like the Bones Brigade of the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And that became like my business model. Shut was a huge factor mm -hmm. in how I wanted Element to operate because it was inspired a lot by, by Shut Skates. So at what point did things start to change from being this like, you know, you had nothing, you had no money, you're living in the office to you're like, oh, actually, we're gaining traction. We're starting to do we're actually becoming a business. Repeat it one more time. I want to answer it. At, at what point did it transition from being this like passion project where you're just like pushing it uphill and you're not making any money to becoming a, a business that's self-sustaining and actually starting to grow? You know, it was a it was a really long road. So people, people think maybe, you know, when you look back on it, it happened overnight. It was really like, you know, brick by brick. I mean, it was a brick by brick situation where it started out really small. Uh, the industry got a little more traction and skateboarding was becoming more popular. Mm -hmm. And we had like done the hard work in the beginning. So we had survived and built a really strong business early on. So we had that architecture in place through the roughest time. Mm -hmm. So then by having that sort of that, that, like, I guess you would almost compare it to like your core here. Mm -hmm. So, uh, we had a really strong core. And so then when skateboarding was growing, we were ready for it. We were ready for it. We, we really had our, we were, our, we were sharp. So, um, we were able to ship product during the time when it, the demand was starting to be created. Uh, we had a brand, which I believe was important because it was friendly mm -hmm. and it was kind and it really was starting to speak to where skateboarding and as it was getting more popular, if you're like a parent or even a shop and you're like, ah, I don't know what decision to make. Should I carry this or that? And you're like, eh, Element's pretty safe yeah. and it's dope and it's also not offensive. And I just opened up the shop. I just got through all these hard times. I'm not going to take a lot of chances. And maybe I'm giving not giving Element enough credit because mm -hmm. the way I'm kind of describing, I'm like, huh. But I think that was a big part of it, and it was like this positive brand. And I was really starting to come out of my shell too, mm -hmm. and really starting to feel a lot more comfortable with my role in the company. And that I think was a big thing because I was like Element's biggest sort of fan. In the early days, going back to those insecurities as an artist, I had a lot of those insecurities as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So that kept me from being like out there really like claiming what this company means and there was just like a point i think where all of a sudden i just decided i'm gonna really put myself out there 
and really start being more engaged with the community, the businesses, go to these trade shows. Go, like I had literally avoided trade shows like the Black Plague. I just didn't want to go to them. I had like a lot of social anxiety, which, you know, we had mentioned mental health earlier, which I would not mind touching on because I think it's important to the listeners. But I had a lot of struggles on that side of things. And so I think one of the turning points for Element was me coming to terms with a lot of that too, getting myself out there. And then that like led to the company, you know, I would go to a Zoomies meeting and be like, this is what you need to do. Like, this is the brand and this is why it's dope. And, you know, a lot of founders weren't doing that at the time and really getting super involved. And I think that actually helped quite a bit. I'm not trying to take credit away from anyone at all, but it's not common back then that I would just be in every meeting, every decision, everything. I was always there, always engaged engage with the team, travel with the team, skated with the team, went to the every meeting, went to every Zoomies 100K, every flipping thing. I was just there, 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 there. So it was just like hammering this business. Any which way I looked, I was just part of it. Um, and then skateboarding was growing in popularity and I was just prepared and, and ready to roll. Um, and a ton of great timing. You know, I think a, a classic story is that it, uh, I, I liked, uh, I was doing um, yoga and I went to a yoga class. I'll never forget. I saw a woman in the yoga class wearing an element shirt and I was like, okay, like something's going on right now. Like this is, this is it. Like you're doing something right. And I think it's funny because in skateboarding, most people would have like, especially the way the industry is. And that's a huge problem in the industry, by the way, from a business standpoint, because I actually think this is what really separated Element from the pack is that I looked at that moment as a defining moment of awesomeness. Yeah. I'm in a yoga class in Newport Beach and there's a woman in my yoga class uh -huh. who does not fit the demographic whatsoever and she's rocking an Element shirt. And most people, especially even today, this would happen. They'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, there's, I just saw a woman going back to the glasses half full and being grateful. Bro. I was just in a yoga class or my wife, not even, my wife was in a yoga class or girlfriend and she just came home and she saw someone in an element shirt. What are we going to do? <laughs> That's skateboarding, right? right? What right. are we going to do? We got to change shit. Yeah. And I was like, yo, I was in a yoga class today and there was a woman wearing a yellow element shirt. Guys, we're doing something right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, to me, the irony is hilarious because that's, you know, going to what I'm doing today with Target and things like that. Like, I look at those things like base hits. Like, yeah, I'm like, man. hell yeah. Hell like, yeah. what are we trying to do? Keep this all to ourselves? Totally. What, that, what the hell is that going to do? Totally, man. And that's skateboarding culture. But um, like, totally I'm totally so good at deviating from the No, question. I mean, I, I love that. I, can I give you an example from my life? Sure. Um, so, I, you know, I grew up playing music. And although I was a therapist, I always was kind of like more focused on playing bands, even though I'm a terrible musician. But uh, um, after like kind of like my main band broke up, where I'd been like the guy who kind of did everything, facilitated everything. And we'd gotten to kind of, you know, like within a very small world, we'd gotten into like kind of a, a cool spot within that small world before the band broke up. Um, so I was at a show uh, years later and I'm talking to this dude who played in a band that we had done some shows with him and I are chilling. And he's like, you're actually like a pretty funny guy. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, 
everyone just kind of thinks, you, and this is like, and I hate when people do this. It's like everyone, it's like, well, who are you? Like, you know, the town reporter, like what do you mean everybody? <laughs> like everyone just always thinks you're just like this business guy. You're just like numbers and figures and next show and getting to the blah, blah, blah. And I was like, and he's, he's like, I always just thought you were a business guy, but like, you're like a cool dude. I was for a moment. I was like, the fuck is this guy and then i took it back i took a, a, a pause and i was like hey man doing anything requires one person and hopefully more than that one person but at least one person to take responsibility for that thing happening whether you're going to go have sandwiches with your friend or whether you're going to go be in a band or you're going to start a company if you're in the right situation it's you and everyone else you're doing with it all working together to the same level or degrees of the same level creating that thing. Yeah. If you're not in a great situation, it's one person and that one person gets it in a way the rest of that those people do not get it. Yeah. But that one person is an outsider that maybe they're like the jerk of the band or they're like the business guy of the band sure. or like they're the jerk friend or they're this or that. And I walked away from that conversation and like we ended up having a good conversation, but I walked away thinking like, I'm just a different cat. And, yeah. and there are scenarios where I can be in where I don't need to do that at all. It's like, hey, let's hang out. Let's have sandwiches. You drive it. I'm, I don't care. Like, whatever. But anything that I think is worth doing that I'm into, I want to play all in. And I want people on my left and right who want to do that as well. Exactly. And if you can't do that, no problem. That's totally cool. But I'm also at a place in my life where I'm comfortable enough to say, if you can't do that, you should probably choose something else. Yeah. Or your... Um, or you don't get a vote, basically. Yeah. It's like you can if you want to be all in, you get a vote. Your yeah. vote is equal to mine. We're gonna do it. If you don't wanna if you if you're not all in, hey, maybe you should go somewhere else or come along for the ride and your opinion's not needed. Like just get yeah. in. Yeah. And getting to that place really took a, a lot of deep reflection of for me of just being like, you get told like you're um intense or like pushing things too much, or like, you know, like why are you driving this? Why are you controlling this? It's like well, yeah, if I don't, who will? Who else is going to do it? Yeah. I got to this point where I was like, bring people that want all in. And when I'm hearing your story, I'm like, oh, like being in all those meetings, I would I would do that. That's that's what I would yeah. do. And that's why you went on to do so much um, incredible stuff with Element. I do want to hit on something unless you wanted to comment on what I just said. No, I'm, I'm good. I thought was, that's just fine. I'm reflecting on what you're saying and what I was talking about because I, I find humor humor and so because you, you were talking about being funny yeah and i'm actually think that that story is quite funny because i remember it so well of how it was like everyone was like <laughs> just touching back on it is that they, they thought it was a negative thing and how i just came in like so excited <laughs> and it was like wonk 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 Dude, you know as soon as you said that i'm like that's so sick and yeah. then you're telling the other side i'm like oh god yeah I, like you forget just... right you forget that that's what you're dealing with and i think that applies to just a, a lot of industries you know because totally. you, you got to be thinking and, and hoping outside the box okay so element starts it because you did that work early on you had like what i'd say like the company had good bones exactly you suffered through that time exactly you built a good company starts growing, you're figuring it out. At what point do you start realizing you need to work on your leadership? Yeah. I don't think I ever knew I was a leader mm. till later. When I realized I was a leader, I needed to be a leader was, <laughs> I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but well, that's actually not true. I'll throw people under the bus <laughs> if it's necessary. <laughs> but, but I had had really 
been around some some crazy leaders, like some pretty wild stuff. Mm -hmm. And I won't say they were bad leaders because honestly, I look back on some of these leaders that that I thought were were bad at the time that I had a lot of. I definitely have a problem with authority. I've always had a problem with authority. That's just how you know. I feel bad for anyone that's had to work, you know, work over top of me. Mm Because I'm just, I have an issue just in general. And it's, it's a lot of times my problem that it's not there. So I'm, I'm very difficult to manage. Um, so I started seeing these qualities in people that I really had a problem with. And then I kind of start, I guess maybe I started realizing like, hold on a minute, I'm a leader. Like I, I'm, I have to deal with this. I can't, and I don't want to be like these guys because that really upsets me, like whether it was a partner or a a meeting I had with seeing another leader that did things that really bothered me. Mm -hmm. And I started realizing I needed to sort of like become a better leader. So it's almost like I realized I was a leader when I realized I needed to be a better leader (laughs) because I never realized I was a leader. And then I'm like, holy shit, I'm leading people the same way these other guys are. Mm -hmm. And because I come from sort of nothing with respect to like, my background. I don't think I really ever thought of myself as a leader or put it being becoming a leader because it was sort of like I didn't have a choice. I had to run this company. I I just automatically started. I didn't apply for a job as a leader. Like that happens. People are like I'm going to apply, you know, you're, you're you're applying for jobs and you're working your way up through the system to become, you know, I'll never forget actually this is an interesting one. I was talking to a person and I was like, "Hey, how do you like determine your success?" Because this was like a guy that was like high up in the food chain of uh, board riders. And, or it wasn't board riders. It was GSM, which is like the holding company at the time for Billabong and Element and Nixon and Ruka. And like, I mean, it was just ridiculous. And this was like one of the top dogs uh, um, on, the, on the board there. And I was like, how do you know when you're uh, successful or a great leader? And his answer was get as many people to report to you as possible. You should have as many reports as possible. That's how you know if you're uh, successful and also a great leader. And I'm like, that's not the answer I was. <laughs> I, I was like, uh, I don't agree with that. Yeah. So um, that 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 that's kind of the when I realized like, oh shit, like I do have a lot of people reporting to me. I I am a leader, and like that's not that's not the the answer. So. Um, I don't know. I guess I, it's almost like I started really, I'm starting to realize now that I was a leader. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if I knew I was a leader when I was leading, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. I've, dude, it makes like, there's so much stuff like looking back because again, I grew up terrible, I have a terrible problem with authority. Horrible, horrible. Um, and I did the thing as a kid, you like work at a grocery store and I'm always like challenging, like we should do this with the bags. It's like, yo kid, chill out. Right. Like you're going to work here for like, a year nobody's even gonna remember you exist like um like there's these moments where you're like i want to lead and then there's moments where like oh shit i've been leading you know and like when i was a kid i always wanted to get out in front of things i wanted to make things better i wanted something to happen and i'll I'll attach it to mental health like i grew up in uh, i grew up in so much chaos when i was young and my parents are lovely people, but they just like the situation. I won't, won't get, I won't have some huge conversation, but the situation was we had serious mental health uh, in the house. My dad got laid off when I was very young and kind of like never really recovered from it. And that was separate from the other mental health thing. My mom ended up being the, um, uh, the matriarch of the house and which was cool for me to experience like, uh, um, 
you know, in the eighties, you grow up with this kind of like male dominated idea of the world. It was great to see that confronted. My mom was the breadwinner, but she had a huge amount of pressure put on her at that point. And then there was other mental health stuff going on. I got bullied a ton as a kid. I was constantly fighting. I grew up looking at the system and just wanted to tear everything down mm. always, but stupid shit. Like, you know, what do we do with the bags at the grocery store? Like sure. I'm constant. I was constantly looking for stuff cause I was looking to lead and challenging if I, everything. Totally. And if I reflect back, it's that I want a heightened amount of control in my life. Um, and I viewed, if you're the boss, then you control things. If you control things, nothing bad's going to happen to you and you can keep bad things from happening to other people, which is not true. That's just not the reality. And then at one point I just found myself to be a leader. I was like, oh shit, I'm actually leading all this stuff I didn't intend to lead. And you know, when I started this company, I didn't start it like, I'm going to start a company. It's just like, oh shit, I guess I'm starting a company. And suddenly I'm in this place where it's like, there's a stillness and more of a calmness about it where I can more hone the art of leadership instead of trying to be like, I need to lead. It's like, oh, well, how do I want to lead? And like, is was I cool there? Or do I need to th roll that back? Why am I anxious about this? Why am yeah. I overtly confident about that? And so the reason I asked you about this is because like you literally took element from like this teeny, teeny thing all the way up to a place where it's like a, you know, it's gone on to um, uh, it's gone on to a whole other level. We'll, we'll wait for that part of the story. Mm -hmm. At what point did you realize there was stuff about your leadership that you loved mm -hmm. and there was stuff you had to work on? I mean, I had, there's a couple of things. I think being a part of a public company is a huge factor in all that because you have the, like all of a sudden enter HR yeah. and you realize as you, it's funny because people hate on HR, right? And I, I think it's a, it's an actual necessity in a, in a large corporate environment, especially, but I think in any environment, like having some level of like, you know, checks and balances with how you treat your people, even if you don't agree. Um, it's, it's just a reality of business. Everybody's different. So when we were part of a public company and I, I would find myself, I'm very passionate. I think that was when I, I really, I think a couple flaw, I definitely realized I was a leader and knew I had to like hone in, as you would say on, on my skills was really more from like negative stuff. So like I would step out of a meeting and, and kind of have to reflect on like, wow, I was like walking around like raising my voice, even because I'm excited, typically excited. Yeah. Um, not often like in anger or anything like that. That would happen from on occasion, but really more just like, okay, you got to control your emotions. Like, I mean, even in this, in this moment now today, like I can, I can catch myself getting like really emotional and caught up in the excitement of the discussion. But when you're in a large group setting, you know, you have to lead by example and you also have to realize that not everyone in that room can relate to that situation. Mm -hmm. So there would be times I would walk out of a, of a meeting and be, you know, maybe later that night or I had a couple close colleagues that would probably talk to me about some stuff and I'd be like, mm, you're right. Like that was crazy. Like I was like, you know, and you hear these crazy stories back then about Steve Jobs or other crazy leaders. And I would kind of catch myself being one of those people. Mm -hmm. And because there's HR, I never really had any issues in that situation, but because I would sit in some of these things and learn about like HR meetings and I had a good relationship with most of our HR executives and just talking about stuff and being like, yeah, I should, I should work on that. And kind of that's when I, I, I think the biggest to answer your question, I would have like moments of like highly passionate moments and 
I feel like you kind of got to figure out how to lasso those and kind of control them. And maybe even like if it's possible, break them up into little pieces and distribute them more, more, more uh, like a four square meal, or five square meal or whatever that might be. Because one gigantic plate of emotion is like, make you get a little full on that. But like, how could you break that up into small meals throughout the day? So you, your body mass stays leaner and so on. Otherwise you end up with like a, a fucking pot belly of emotion. So to me, it's like, okay, take all that crazy passion and emotion and things like that. And how do you sort of like channel that and distribute it equally within your organization? Um, and so I just realized that was probably one of my biggest flaws is that, um, and I had a few times where I, I you know, I get called out. I had a, a great uh, colleague and my wife, I, I mean, I never want to, my who would become my future wife, my wife. Um, she's always been someone who's <laughs> fortunately and unfortunately, but really calls me out, yeah. really keeps me honest. I've been very grateful and I'm very blessed to have her in my life because she would always sort of be that sort of balance of like, well, and we'll get into this. I worked with her. She was very involved with my professional life. So she would, it's kind of embarrassing, but she would, we'd get home and she'd be like, do you, do you know what you said in that meeting? Or did you kind of like see that? And I'm like, fuck, did that happen? Like, I was just so caught up in the, the moment. It was insane. And, you know, that, that probably is my, I have two probably major business flaws or leadership flaws, which is highly emotional, both most often, like, like you say, you get so far out into the 10 year vision that you're like, people are like, what the hell? Like I'm talking about collabs with like Apple and you know, whatever it might be. It's just so insane. And that gets, you know, I'm passionate about it. And people are like, yo dude, we just got to get this board graphic done. Yeah. Like what the <laughs> hell is happening right now? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, aren't we going to like, this board's going to fly to the moon, isn't it? <laughs> and people are like, yo, this shit's got to be done in like 30 minutes. So I have that. Which is which is a a pretty big flaw, and then I would say that I'm I'm in, I'm pretty impatient. Yeah. I'm pretty impatient. So like I and 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 the fact that it sucks for a lot of other people, but back to like understanding programs and how things work. A lot of times people could be like, "Well, I need some time. It's gonna it's gonna render for like 45 hours, and then we got to do this." And I'm like, "No, it's not, dude. Like, I I know how Premiere works. Like, just let's go buy you a faster computer. Yeah. Like, like let's Illustrator create outlines. Like, if you create outlines, it's gonna do that. And then they're just they're like, oh shit, just scoot over. Let me get in there and just like <laughs> fucking do this graphic on my own. And that's bad, right? Like, I don't empower people. I didn't mm -hmm. empower people enough, which is you know, that's a flaw. Dude, it's hard. Like I'm laughing at the things you're saying because I relate to it. Spencer came up with this idea um, uh, called like Turning Point, like this way we're going to focus on, on on punk people and how they started their own businesses and great idea. And it's, I'm sorry, Spencer, I've taken this thing and I'm like, he's taking your idea and running with it. The worst. <laughs> you just got to give him credit. I'm as long worst. as you give him credit. This thing is turned into like a magic banana that's going to fly us to Mars. Like I have like, I can't, I just, well, not that I can't, I struggle with what you just said. It's like, I love, what if we did this? Yeah. And if I go back to playing in bands, it's like, oh, that's a cool riff. A great feedback I got from a guy is like, stop saying, but start saying, and cause oh, I, yeah. he'd be like, you'd say, I, you'd always say, that's a great idea, but what if we did this? And it d dismisses my idea instead of Completely. saying, um, what if we did this and, and it brings my idea 
with with that's us. That's right. And my thinking was always like, oh, the song could be this, and this is where your idea will fit into that. But it always felt that I was saying, but. And in this case, I actually kind of was saying, but I <laughs> maybe was dismissing the idea, but it was great feedback. Spencer, I'm sorry that I've taken your idea. I'm trying to fly to the moon on a magic banana with it. I just, I, I, as you were saying that, I'm just dying laughing. Yeah. The other thing is like, yeah, man, like you get stuck in these things where it's like, I just want to do it for you. Um, yeah. But you'd said that's not good leadership. No. How come? Well, uh, there's a lot of reasons as to why. The first reason is personal independence and freedom. Uh, so to me now, where I am in my own life, is that the more you don't let people do things for you, the less opportunity you have to enjoy your life. Yeah. And so for me now, there's a couple reasons why, a lot of reasons as to why, but my number one reason, which is very selfish, of why I want to empower people, it begins with, empowering my own life. Mm. And so the most important thing in life is to live it, <laughs> right? There's a, there's a concept. Yeah. So how can you live your life if you are trying to live everyone else's life for them? Because their life is to do that board. Let them do it. Why? It gives you life. Because the second you sit down and grab the mouse and do it for them or find yourself in a meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting, and you do all these things, the more you aren't able to grow with your whole life. And so I, I think that's a huge problem because these executives are like, and, and, and I've, it, dude, I'm trying so hard to learn this because it's gnarly, but if I can empower everyone around me and everyone around me can, like, I've always said this and I do, I've actually never back, pushed back on this particular concept, which is always make sure the people you hire are smarter than you mm -hmm. and make sure you give them all the credit and all that stuff. I've been pretty good about that. Like I want, I've never not wanted everyone around me to be smarter than, I always want them smarter than me. Yeah. In fact, I always think I'm the dumbest guy in the room. I'm pretty sure I am still. Um, but empower those people so you can have a life because nothing's more important than your family, your children, your health, your mental health, and even your sharpness at work. And how can you sharpen your own self if you're constantly doing other shit? So that's one, which is the selfish one. The number two, which is critical, is if you want to surround yourself with people smarter than you, you have to let them become smart. Mm -hmm. So you have to empower them to learn and you have to be prepared to accept those mistakes. I have a thing that I call to 80%. I made this up. But to me, which is, it's hard to believe I've gotten to this point in my life, but as long as it's at 80, I'm going to let it slide. And I used to have to be 101% was how everything had to be, like some Steve Jobs type shit. Yeah. And I've learned that it isn't just about my business. It's about my my my, my employees' lives, my life, my children's life, the industry. And at 80%, if something is delivered to me, and even though I'm like, eh, I mean, I won't say, actually, sometimes I'll say, okay, it's at, it's over 80. And the, and I'll just say, let it go, let it go, let it be, let it live, let it live in the world, the graphic, the people, the, the initiative, the skater, like it did it hit 80. And I've got this weird 80 thing going. And so I let the 20% slide because the 20% equals they get to grow because they, they, they got to let it go. Because if I get it to one, 101%, I actually took over the last 20. Yeah. Because they, they got it to 80 and I'm like, it's 80, but I got to just scoot aside so I get it to 100. Yeah. And they're like, fuck, bro. It's like, I think it's 100. I'm like, it's not, I'm the, I'm the guy. Yeah. And so I'd be like, 
get over here. I'm going to get that 21% in there. So it's perfect. And that person's like, fuck bro. I can't even, and they don't get credit for the job. Cause then I'm like, I did that. Yes. Cause I'm like a fuck like back then, especially I'm like this egomaniac. Yeah. So then I'm like, actually I did that. <laughs> I did that. There's the point. my idea <laughs> actually. Cause the person's in the meeting, like, fuck, I did that. Right. And then I'm like, Actually, I did that because I did the fucking 21%. And that's really bad leadership. And by the way, I did that a lot back in the day. And um, that doesn't give your employees any um, uh, confidence. Um, and also, that's not cool. Like, as a human, like, let them live. And so, I don't know, uh, 80%. Dude, I, I love it. I relate to it. Um, I'm going to start applying that more in my life because I got to say what you said about also just like focusing, not taking over on a project and letting other people actually do it. Even if let's say they get to 80%, the biggest gain is you get to just enjoy your own life more. That's right. And that like weird perfectionism where it's like, no, it actually has to have that extra 21%. Nobody in the world's going to notice except for like you. That's right. You know, or like maybe someone on your level. And, and that on your level maybe isn't even a good thing that's necessary for the market, right? right. That's um, right. That having that more space to like enjoy your life, have that extra 30 minutes or two hours with your kid or with your wife or go on a walk or have some food, go on a run, like, yo, that stuff matters. And poor leaders are made of being obsessive where you don't actually enjoy your life. Like the worst leaders I know are people who all they do is their business and they just don't, they're not plugged into life. I shouldn't say the worst. Many of the worst leaders I know yeah. are, are in that space. Cause I have, I have met some that are wonderful. Okay. Let's, let's move into your transition from element. Um, cause that's, that's huge. That's a mm -hmm. huge part of your story. So, um, maybe give us a little background of like what led up to it and then we'll head into where you are now and, and what you're working on these days. Yeah. Well, First off, I love this conversation. I, I just got to say that. Like, I love talking about these things and, and everything you're saying is quite enlightening too, by the way. I find so much interest talking to other entrepreneurs and people's perspective on business. It's it's quite fun. I was saying that during the break. Like, I just really, uh, it feeds my fire, right? Because like, I think this goes back to like your, your role in life and what you're meant to do. And I think it's really important these type of conversations take place because there's not a lot of, business people out there taking that 21% of time. And instead of fine tuning a graphic, you're fine tuning other people's opportunities to like learn from your shit. Right. Cause like what we just said, if anyone out there is listening and you let that go, man, you're going to make a lot of motherfuckers happy. <laughs> totally, like seriously, totally. the amount of lives you will change. You could go and start a nonprofit and try to feed the whole world. And you might have more success giving 21% back to your staff mm -hmm. and where that could go and the amount of businesses and generations of lives that could change because of that one decision to empower people, right? Um, so what was the question? <laughs> um, lead up to uh, you making the decision to, to move on. To uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, man, um, it was a crazy, like, <sighs> I was... Well, the biggest thing with the element and, and, and we're not, it doesn't matter. And I, we don't need to get into all the other like nuances of other businesses that were created either prior element or because of element. Cause one thing about element and skateboarding in general, and, and there's a lot of people out there that were 
again, this is like blessed for this to happen, is that, and I'll use uh, like Deluxe, uh, which is a skateboard distribution company up in Northern California. And it's run by an individual by uh, Jim Thebo, who's an amazing human. But what, what's really rad about skateboarding and other cultures, I think music industry is a lot like this. You're like, how are we going to make this? No one does this. And you're like, oh, I guess we're going to have to build our own plant. Because <laughs> uh, nobody knows, nobody makes skateboard wheels. Like, I guess we're going to have to make make your thing. Mm-hmm. You know. What I mean? So what skateboarding has, it's really cool, is there are a lot of skaters and entrepreneurs out there have side hustles because they had to do it because mm-hmm. no one knew how to make a skateboard. No one knew how to pour a wheel or make a skateboard truck or make a skateboard magazine. And, you know, we had a company that we started called 411 and uh, 411 Video Magazine, and no one made skateboard video magazines. So we had to like create a duplication house to make duplications of skateboard videos. And then we had to hire filmers and all of a sudden filmers were like an actual skateboard occupation. And people are like, what do you do for a living? I'm a skateboard filmer. And you're like, what? That's a job? You're like, it is because of 411. And you know, so to me, that is why, where I'm going with this is that you end up with like all this stuff, right? Just so much stuff because, and I don't know about other industries as well. But I can speak on behalf of myself and a lot of other founders of skateboarding, action sports industries. You end up with a lot of stuff and you have, you kind of think it's a good thing as like, I guess in your early life, you're like, oh, I'm a successful entrepreneur with all these great businesses and people and you're doing all these other things. And if you're in the industry, you you know, like, and I'll use Deluxe, that's why I brought up Deluxe because, you know, at Deluxe, there's like whole bunch of other brands and they make wheels and there's trucks and they're part of a a bigger movement within skate and if you're part of the the dna you know that well that was me Mm -hmm. so i had all this stuff and i kind of was like it's a lot you know this is a lot of stuff (laughs) like do i need all this stuff like i don't know if i want all this responsibility and all this pressure and it had just been a long time. I was tired. And the other part was, and I, and I, it's deep. I was really tired of corporate leadership. So tired of the big machine. And it's funny because it took, it's taken a long time to heal from leaving Element and a lot of those businesses behind and selling them or whatever may have happened quitting, selling, going out of business uh, element was publicly traded. Then it got taken private and bought by private equity, the whole group, not just element, our whole group. And so having ridden that corporate world of like flying to board meetings and getting on stage and doing PowerPoints and then like getting back in the street and being a skater and trying to like make sense of that with like a team rider. And you're like, oh man, Little do they know, and like, do I even want to bother them with this, this this stuff? It's so intense. And then going back into the corporate environment and trying to f- defend the team or the the reason why we do this. And uh, something that happened that was like a a really big moment for me. And I I I've actually never told the story out loud, so I may actually edit it out. Yeah, whatever but you want. I'm going to tell the story, and we'll see where it goes. Uh. We at Element were all about making organic products. Like we were really making some headway with like 
my whole vision for a long time was like, I want to be the Patagonia of action sports. That was like the product mission. There was a, there was a, you know, philanthropic mission with helping kids and skate camps and a lot of other things. But the, the product mission was like, how do we get to become Patagonia? And when an element had started way back when that was like, you know, doing organic teas and recycled bottles, none of that stuff, even that technology didn't even exist. So at the beginning of element, it was like putting really important messages on the product. Like, how do you, I, my thing with element was always like, actually my thing with everything I was pretty much involved with is it can't just be ink on a tea. I'm so tired of like, what, what does that mean to you? Like, why did you buy that? Like, it, it has to say something like your kid can't just walk around, you know, and I don't want to be too gnarly, but like, yo kid, what is that? What does that mean? Does it say something? Do you know what that means? Do you know? So with element the whole Patagonia of action sports, that was like my whole idea is like, how could this company be totally organic? Like totally everything we do just changes the world for the better all the way from like ecologically sustainably to, uh, socially, environmentally, et cetera. So that was like the whole thing. And there was a time when I said inside the company, 51%, 51% of our product needs to be in some way, let's get there. So we can at least say the majority, that should be the magic word here. The majority of our company needs to be organic, sustainable, some way, shape or form better, right? And I was constantly chasing, or we were constantly chasing this 51%. Because, And I would sit in meetings and be like, are we at 51%? And there'd be the times where I'd be like, well, if you include this and that, it sends it over. I'm like, hey, include, let's just try to get there. Like, let's make it better, make it better. Like, can it be 20% organic cotton? Or, you know, how do we get there? And there's things like wheels that are toxic. And you know, there's certain things you, it's really difficult to get around. And you kind of got to check yourself. And there's so many ways you can do that wrong. But that became my thing. And there was a time when like we were very comfortably saying 51%. Like, wow, like we are at 51% between all these little things we're doing. Because Element had a very large footprint on printables. Mm. And the fact that we were getting most of our tees at the time were starting to become organic t-shirts. We had like big, big printables business. And those t-shirts were being distributed into PacSun and Tilly's and all over the flipping world. And to think that this is like the bread and butter of our company and the vast majority of it is organic, that's a good feeling. And to get those, you know, like where all of a sudden your t-shirts are the, the breadwinner of your business and it's organic, that's exciting. So that was really like something that was driving me in my mind with element and then a moment took place which is where i'm going with the story is that it was really silly like i said hey and this is pre-stance i think but either way it was like hey um i want all we had a really good sock business and i said to myself it could be really easy to do 100 percent of our socks organic like does anyone even here even care about the sock business like what kind of money does socks even bring in and it was just like nothing, right? Like nothing. Like we'd be stuck. We sold 20 socks. Like it's not even a business here. Like we, I don't know. And, and again, we saw some traction with the socks thing, which is why it kind of like popped up on my radar. But it was like, hey, this is sort of like beer. I call it beer money. Right. I don't even drink, but that was like a thing. It's beer money, right? Like if we have no sock business or if we had a huge sock business, this is just like a perk. And everyone agreed. So I was like, well, 
let's do all organic socks. Like that's an easy one. We could literally right now today, is it true? Like, can we do 100% of our sock business be organic? Even if the sock costs a thousand dollars or $5 source an organic sock. So we end up making a hundred percent of our socks become organic. And we come up with a tagline, which I definitely do not think I thought of this. I think I probably read it somewhere, but it was like, leave no footprints. 100%. Okay. Come on. That's good. That's yeah. gold, right? Yeah. Leave no footprints. I think they're like it's on signs all over national parks and shit. Right. But leave no footprints, element, organic socks. Right. So we're all excited. We have 100% of our socks are organic. You know, you're doing a catalog. You're able to claim it. You've got like cool copy of why they're organic. And you're like, oh, man, we're making some traction. This is really some positive stuff. And also you're setting a tone for like what might be able to happen to the other product in the future because we use this as our ex example. And are people buying it? Do they believe in this whole concept? Like, let's just use this as like a little test. And it socks, no big deal, right? Everybody's agreed. Everybody agrees. So our sock business really picks up. It starts doing quite well. And I'm like, wow, this whole sock thing is like organic socks at Element. Like, this is great. So what happened that, that really pivoted my entire perspective of business and private equity and corporate environments and public company and paying attention to the numbers and all that was that here was this category that was completely off the reservation. Mm -hmm. And you, we were uh, growing it from pretty much nothing. And so then all of a sudden it got on the radar. And people are like, oh, what's that sock business over there? And you're like, oh, that's this whole thing. We're kind of killing it on socks. And so they were like, oh, we should try to grow that. You're like, I, I agree, we're doing it now, but sure. Like that's always, there's the money more quarterback. You're like, no shit. We've been like focusing on this for like two years. We've got it to hundred percent organic socks and it's growing. That was the point, right? That's why we did it. It's got a two page spread now in our catalogs. It used to be like the size of a fucking postage stamp and nobody cared about it. Now it's covering some real estate. It's becoming a business. So what went down was we were trying to source like you know, grow the category and like introduce some more colors and like just do it, like have a proper assortment because it's a growing business. So what ended up happening was that someone at the time, and it's not important who it is, wanted to get a particular color of the sock or price point. I can't remember. Color, price point, doesn't matter. And by putting this one sock, one sock, which would actually be two, it's a set, so... <laughs> So that's an argument, right? Like, is that a one is sock a two or what? How does that work? These so this set of socks uh, in the line, they had somehow sourced a sock and they got it to the price point they wanted. And they were like, oh man, if we get this sock in this particular color at this particular price point, we're going to sell fucking thousands of these things. I was like, oh, sick. Is it organic? They're like, mm -mm. I'm like, well, dude, don't, we can't make it. Like the, the whole business is hanging on this concept. And it's a, it's a big win for the company. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I either, again, because I, 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 it's just so long ago, I don't know if I agreed because in my naivety and just wanting to please the machine, I let it slide or I kicked and screamed and like, I, I don't honestly don't remember. But more importantly, what happened is the sock squeezed into the line because that was so, it was so important to get that organics, that non-organic sock to grow the business that we were no longer able to say this entire campaign that said 100% of our sock line, like even in a sales meeting, you could be like, hey, buyer, all of our socks are organic. This is our angle. You had to be like, 
99.999% of our socks are organic, except for this one that's like a nickel and it's pink. And they're like, huh? And that showed the, the ignorance of the machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it just broke my heart. It, it literally just destroyed me yeah. because of how symbolic this moment was because it really was, meant so many other things yeah. to me. Totally. And that I carried that with me for a really long time, like in my little bag of resentment, um, because I would see it happen throughout corporate world all the time. And I'd speak to other people and back to what you said earlier, like at what point do you, am I going to be part of the problem and complain and, or am I going to like, just do my own shit and element one thing you can't do, this is some like to the listeners out there. One thing you can't, I don't think you should do is if you have a big epiphany in your life and you have a company that's propped up and doing well and everybody's prospering from it. And you know, you've got 25 years of DNA there and you have an idea. I think a big problem people do is they'll take that idea as a selfish leader and they plug it into the company and disrupt everything. Right? Like all of a sudden, and you've heard these stories where like, the CEO gets into like golf and all of a sudden they're like, Hey, we're going to buy a golf company. And you're like, what? Why? Cause we have a shitload of money and I love golf and I want to go play with fucking tiger woods. And you're like, all right, I guess we're buying a golf company because whatever said we are. And then you just get way off track and everybody's sidetracked. You're out of your, you know, the DNA and what you're meant to be. So there was a piece of that happening where I'm like, what I want to do isn't what element needs to do anymore. And element is great. I love it. Like it's a beautiful brand. And, but at the same time, I can't be the person I've sold it. I don't own it anymore. It's run by private equity. I've got stakes in the deal, but at the end of the day, it's not my business. You know, you have to realize that seller's remorse. It's a real thing. And I was like, these things are happening. It's in the best interest of the shareholders. That's why you sell businesses. That's why private equity buys companies. You have to realize that. And I didn't realize that. Like, that's a new thing for me of like, wow, I made a lot of executives suffer the, in the board or in the private equity because I was thinking about it still like I was my money, you know, back to like my money and my business. And it is a good idea, the things I wanted to do, but it's not necessarily what those guys, they, they bought it. They want to turn it into a rollerblade company. That, that's their prerogative. Like, I, I mean, I could fight, kick and scream and whine and do whatever I want and give them my opinion, but hey, they bought it. And that's, that's, a, that's a really big, gnarly, jagged pill to swallow. Um, but I swallowed it and I realized that I had to go do my own shit. And again, I'm not throwing anyone under the bus because I do think that those guys and those executives and all corporations, public company, private equity, you name it, it's their shit. And like you said, if you don't like it, go and do your own thing. So we just couldn't see eye to eye on those things. And I under, I just kind of like came to terms with that. And I was just ready for, for change. And so it was just like a really aha moment of that sock story combined with a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a bold statement, and I don't mean this in a, in a, in a bad way, but Element's kind of not a skateboard company anymore. 
right? Like that's cool in many ways. Like how I said, I had that aha moment of a woman in a yoga class wearing an element shirt. Well, it's that to the nth degree now. And it's fashion and it's clothing. I'm a skater forever. Yeah. I will be a skater till the day I die. I will literally be buried with a skateboard. Mm. Like I'll be cremated or buried with a skateboard. You guarantee it. And no matter what happens in my life, and no matter how many times people would try to call me out, I will, that's one thing. I might struggle claiming to be an artist or claiming to be an entrepreneur, but one thing I don't struggle with at all is that I am 100% skateboarder. And when my brand, or not my brand, is becoming a clothing brand, which again, that's cool. That's okay. Like, I'm proud of that. Like, we made high fashion did shit and like on runway shows, and they're designing amazing stuff with amazing clothing designers, and people are wearing it everywhere. And it's like shit that back when I was into fashion, I'm proud of that. But that's not, I'm a skateboarder at the end of the day, and I don't want to be running a clothing brand. And they don't want a skater running a clothing brand because I'm just constantly going to be turning it back to, well, what does this have to do with skateboarding? What does this have to do with our original DNA? It's like a broken record player. Who wants to hear that shit all day? If I owned it, I'd be like, fire that motherfucker. Like, seriously, <laughs> like, is he going to bring that skateboard shit up? We just paid X amount of dollars for that. I don't want to hear that shit. I didn't buy a skateboard company. I bought a skateboard company that's going to become a fucking massive clothing brand. Yeah. And if that's what it's going to be, that's not the game I'm playing. Oh, yeah. Well, um, dude, first of all, thank you for the vulnerability there. Because you said a lot of stuff there, like things that can resonate, things that I could imagine maybe in my own future. Like uh, there's a lot of cool stuff there. And for anyone who's just like, you started something cool, you started out of your garage, your apartment, whatever it is, some people, and, and for most people, that thing fizzles out, you do your next thing, you do your next thing, and maybe nothing pops for them. Right. For some people, something pops and you get attention and people care. And at some point, you gotta let it go. You do. And that letting it go it's very hard it's super hard it, yeah, it, it's really hard, hard. And, and what you just shared uh, i think is um really incredible and i appreciate it so let's Thank as we're you. heading towards the end of our conversation here let's talk about what you're doing now let's talk about the heart supply okay thank you um well with all that being said uh it's funny i i wasn't quite sure what i was going to do next um and it was weird because you kind of wonder like, okay, am I going to retire and sort of step away from all this and just be a skater and be a father? And, you know, you just don't, you don't really know. And, and, and I think that's, you know, talk about HQP high quality problems, right? You're like, what am I going to do? Like, that's crazy that you can, you know, I mean, I look back on, look at that every day and I'm like, I can't even believe this is an option to even ask that question to myself. Cause normally the answer would be go get a fucking job is what you're going to do. Right. Um, so I was trying to figure out what 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 we wanted to do, what I wanted to do with myself, and going back to like some mental health stuff. And my whole life struggled with like anxiety, depression, uh, kind of like compulsive behavior because of all the things that I struggled with as a kid and had to deal with. So that didn't help also because when you have that departure, you're kind of like like literally there's like it's a death in your life when you walk away from a company that you were part of for almost 30 years, people don't understand the, 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 the loss. And I think that goes back to some things that upset me because, you know, there's not a lot of, of people that are compassionate to the founders 
that are dealing with that. And I think that's something, you know, if I were to give advice to private equity and publicly traded companies and boards of directors, that's very difficult for most of those people to relate to. You're talking about a person inside an organization that had a baby. And like, you kind of need to respect the parent. And and again, like I make jokes about that earlier. Like, you know, you bought the company and you you should be able to do what you want to do. And I, but there's a level of compassion and there's a level of like, dude, this guy just like, lost his kid or let you adopt his child like you need to like respect that um and if i were to ever be in that position well i have been in that position but to be in that position of owning a brand that you have other founders you know looking back on those things and giving advice to other people that are part of that is that you got to always remember that because you're going to get the best out of that founder if you keep that in mind through the the process and i think it's easy for people that come from a a non-founder role to not ever understand the the love you have for that child and the separation anxiety you get when you're away from it or you're being there's meetings taking place about big things that you know your kids like going off to their first party alone and you're like hold on I'm not in that meeting about we're going to do a shoe division with the brand I started you know even though you should let go of that it's still like the, the the people that own the business now should be like, hey, we're talking about making shoes and expanding into like big wheels. Like we might want to bring Johnny or whomever in to explain the logic, right? So why I'm I'm mentioning that is that I um when I, I was going through all of that, I was really suffering from a lot of of uh again, like throughout my life, but really suffering with like, what am I gonna do? Like, this is my identity. Like, this is everything I am. My whole life, I dedicated to this. I'm live and breathe element and and skateboarding and this team and, you know, all these individuals on the team. And even those guys don't fully understand, like, hey, is Johnny all right? Like, he just lost his kid, literally. And they're off, you know, they're going to ride for other brands and, like, do their own things. And to them, like, element might be a five-year, three-year, and in some cases longer for a lot of guys. But... There's a situation, and I'm not saying get out the world's smallest violin for me, but I'm just explaining like no one's quite understanding these people that have been close to you for all this time that like, dude, this is heavy. Mm -hmm. My wife understood. My children understood. And we were as a family, like, what are we going to do? So what I had noticed that had been a big chip on my shoulder for a long time in skate, and I just watched the Tony Hawk uh, documentary until the wheels fall off, which actually is really hot on my mind right now, which is with Element and with skateboarding, what I really saw was no one was really catering to the brand new skater, the kid, or even the kid who hasn't skated yet. And I I just kind of, like we did Element Twigs, which was a really good run with like miniature skateboards for little guys. And that's how we ended up getting like Nigel Houston and Tom Shar and really grooming some incredible skateboarders that went on to do amazing things. And that was a big moment for me because I was like, and back to Element, I I talk about the sock thing. I remember sitting in a meeting and they're like, yeah, we really should just like kind of stop this whole Twigs thing. And I'm like, what? Like, that's how we got Nigel like twigs bro like he's the greatest skateboarder on the face of the earth because of a twig you want to stop this so like that i was like 
And that was fairly recent. I had this twig meeting and going back to like things I can talk about now that I'm not there. And again, this isn't throwing element under the bus because they have moved on to wonderful things. But I sat in a meeting and the executive at the time sat with me and was like, hey, I'm really glad I got your, got your ear for a minute. I really think we should stop this whole twigs thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I just was like, that is the foundation of skateboarding. Like, are you kidding me? So that really kind of sat with me again, these type of things. And I'm like, I literally think twigs is the future. Like beginning skateboarding is it. And what, what cool brand is really making that happen? Like, why isn't there a brand that's focusing on just kids who either just started skating or don't skate yet? How do we create a brand that has pros, has cool graphics, basically all the architecture of an amazing skateboard brand, but it's 100% focused on a kid, not cheesy, like a kid that, that, like not a cheesy brand, a kid that really wants to get engaged with skateboarding, sees the beauty of skate culture, or they saw it on the Olympics, their parents either used to skate, there's something drawing them to skate, but then they get there and they're like, hold on a minute, this is a whole bunch of grown ass men that like don't cater to me. And there's been some attempts like Twigs and some other brands that do things like that, but nothing where we're just like, hey, we do this and we're proud of it. Like this is who we are. We talk to you, we bang our chests about being a beginner skateboard brand. We are proud of this moment. And our riders, our pros, like when we went and recruited these guys, we were like, we are doing this. You aren't gonna hide from this. You're going to stand out and shout we are here for entry-level beginner skaters because we want you to skate and love the skateboarding community, this thing that we all get so much joy from. And the, and the thing that was so mind-boggling to me was like, you talk about skateboard brands and they're like, ah, oh, we do this, we make single decks, we're doing these cool-ass graphics, et cetera, et cetera. And they're like, and we make complete skateboards that are sold at Zoomies, but don't tell anyone. And by the way, it's 50% of our business. <laughs> and then you're like, uh, and the pros are like, yo, bro, like we got to do a collab with this. And I got this single deck hanging up in this particular skate shop and it's dope and blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, hey, do you have a complete with your name on it? No, <laughs> I, I would never want that. You know, and it's just like, it's funny because, you know, you think about that, it'd be like being an amazing rock band, right? The greatest band of all time, or not even like mm -hmm. punk, black, let's just say you're Black Flag and you're Henry Rollins and you're like, I don't want kids to listen to my music. Like, <laughs> like, right? You're like, hold on a minute. What's the average age of a skater, yeah. right? They're young, dude. They're so young. They're like literally, and it's getting younger. So they're like five years old all the way to like, you know, whatever, 12. Mm -hmm. And like, no one's talking to these guys. Everybody's just like this gigantic fraternity of like, yo, we all drink. We're all over 21. We smoke shitloads of weed. We're in tour vans. And I'll even say like, hey, would you let your kid get in the tour van? Like, would you let your own child travel with your own team? They're like, fuck no. Like, are you kidding me? I'm like, but that's every skater, bro. Like every skater pretty much that's starting to skate is like nine. Yeah. And you won't, like, what does that tell you? So we were having a big thing in our family about this. Like, we were really upset about it because we were like, man, you can't, like, there's no one servicing this side of the market. It's totally amazing and positive. 
there's like, you go to a contest, there's parents involved, their kids are going, the kids are like, yo, dad, check out this trick. You know, like dad's at the park with the kid. He's skating these, it's, it's generational now. And you got these like gritty skaters like, yo, dude, that kid's here with his dad. That shit's kind of whack. And like the kid's wearing a helmet and like he's got a helmet with a mohawk on it. And his little brother's got a razor and they're all here with like a picnic basket and hanging out and having fun and being a, a, like a well-functioning family. That shit is whack. <laughs> like, how, like that guy's got bad look for our park. And the dad's like coming over like, hey, do you mind not drinking that six pack of beer in this park filled with six year olds? The guy's like, what the hell? He's coming in here trying to tell me how to do my shit. Like, this is our park. And you're like, bro, it was your park like 25 years ago. Guess whose park it is now? Yeah. The future. Yeah. Right. And so it just was driving me crazy. And then on top of that, and I don't want to throw my son under the bus here because it's kind of rough because he's part of a huge factor in this all, is that my son camp, He's a skater um, and he's a damn good skater. Mm -hmm. And he started skating. We all started skating, all of us, our whole family. But he started skating when he was born. And he skated and he's grown into becoming a fascinating and incredibly creative, beautiful skateboarder. And I love him with all my heart. And when he first started really getting into it, I really started looking at skateboarding through a different lens because I was like, hold on a minute. I'm about to go on tour with the team with my son. And I got to drive a separate van. Like I literally have to take a separate van with the, the Twigs kids mm. because they can't be in the van with these other guys. I'm like, that's not right. Like we should all be able to ride together. Like that's just skateboarding, right? But you have to have like, and people talk about it all the time. You got the sober van, the party van, and like the, you know, you got to separate these guys. It's just how skateboarding works. And so I definitely started looking at it and I'm like, man, I'm talk I was taking him to contests and really starting to look at skateboarding like through a different lens because of the fact that I was a I mean, I'm going to brag for a minute. And that is our family and the hard supply is kind of lethal mm -hmm. in the sense that we are like the real deal. Why? Because I'm an old ass crusty skater that grew up in the supreme days of New York and shut and zoo York and like legit street skater. Right. Then my wife is like full on skate mom. She is like skate mom, top to bottom. She just is a, a, a woman who has a child who is deep engaged in skating. And she needs as a great mom and wife, she is present for our skate life. Then I'm a skate dad. So I like, I'm a dad that has a son that skates. I happen to skate. So I'm like cruising around and, you know, like I want him to wear a helmet. I want it to be safe and our family's going. So we're like this skate family and I'm a skateboarding entrepreneur that has lived and breathed the entire industry. So I'm like, when people are like, I don't know, man, he doesn't totally get it. I'm like, bro, do you have a kid that skates and also did, you know, fucking Smith down Hollywood 16, kickflip the 12 at 12 years old? And rips like nobody's business and loves like Max Allure and Little Dre. Like I know, watch more skateboarding YouTube and TikTok and than any 50-year-old man on the planet because of like I love it and my kids skate. So the point of all this is, is that someone needed to step up and start a brand that was proud of this new emerging uh, opportunity. And we wanted to do it because it's a great business model and back to being, you know, this whole point of being an entrepreneur. But also, 
I love it and it needs it so bad. And so we were like, yeah, we're going to make completes. We're going to make them affordable. Cause it was this whole thing of like, no one's even like focusing on how do we make these boards affordable for these kids? Cause skaters will say like, they're not proud of the complete market. So like, let's just say like real skateboards or Baker skateboards. And these guys make a complete as they should, but they're not necessarily really proud of it. Or the core market's also not proud when they see a Baker complete board in a Tilly's window at the mall. It's sort of like, I didn't see that, yeah. you know, like that, that's, that's like not who we are as a brand. It, maybe it's not, but the boards are also really expensive because that's not what they're, they're focused on. That's not their priority. It, and it shouldn't be because that's not who their, their brand is catering to. But we were like, okay, we have to make this board affordable. We want to get a lot of kids on it. We don't want to turn parents away. Like a $125 skateboard is just a lot to ask. And so they end up in Target looking for a board and that's when skate community gets all upset because then the kids ends up in like walmart or target and they're like he's on a walmart board you're like well what else is he supposed to be on guy like you should be happy that he's getting involved with skateboarding what's your problem he bought that board from walmart walmart's carrying brands that are whack and then you're like okay well then let's get some skaters in there and start a walmart brand no that's whack too okay well do you have a solution so you're going to go buy a 40 dollar, 50 dollar complete at core ass skate shop no that's whack too we can't have the core you're just like dude what do you want us to do do you want more kids to skate so pros can get paid yeah pros are getting totally underpaid well let's get more kids on skateboards that'll pay them all right that's a great idea well then we need more beginner brands we need more kids on boards from walmart we actually need more kids on scooters too by the way because then once they get sick of the scooter, they just hop on a skateboard. Why? Because they've got a whole life at the skate park. They've got friends at the skate park. They've spent the last five years at the skate park on a scooter. And all they want to do is become a skater. And they finally become a skater. And it's a scooter that got them there. So don't hate on the scooters either. Like, embrace it. And if they stay on a scooter, cool, because now your kid's got a friend. Isn't that cool? Like, what is up with everybody? So I get super upset about it. Because the whole industry is just not ready to like grow together. Right. Just like the car industry, everybody should just be like, okay, this is skateboarding. It's in the Olympics. This is this side. This is that side. And like, you know, I've, I've asked questions out to the core market. I've even said things like, you know, what do you think about, uh, I don't know, like a really, I'm not going to mention a name, but this potentially popular skater. What if they just had a pro model in Walmart or whatever? Like, isn't that okay? Like, don't you want a little kid that's six years old that's never seen a skateboard in his life get a $50 skateboard that this guy's name on it? Then he'll get the $125 one. I compare it to like BMW. He gets a three series, a five series, and a seven series. Mm -hmm. Once he gets a seven series, that means he's riding a crooked board with indies and spits. And like, he's making Zoomies money. He's making Baker money, uh, crooked money. Don't we all want that? And the pro finally gets paid. The pro that's like starving with no health insurance and he's broken his fucking back his whole life. And nobody's like, everybody... Anytime I say it's like, it's a bad word to get rich in skateboarding. Like what's wrong? What's up with that? Like you can't be rich in skating without being in trouble. But then everybody loves Tony Hawk now. Cause he managed to like get through that. And everyone's like, Oh, I was like his friend all the way through. Like he's Tony Hawk. I'm he's the shit. And you're like, bro, I heard those conversations. Like you're friends with him now, but you didn't support him through the process. I mean, Dwayne Peters said it all day long on that Tony Hawk. Oh. Interview. Long, He's he totally fesses up to it. I give the guy mad props. Mm -hmm. So I know I'm going on, but it's a heated thing for me because our mission, when you you know back to the original question about the heart supply, mm -hmm. is that our mission was 
I'm sick of this. Like, I'm just not looking back. Like, I'm going to be proud of this. Our riders are going to be proud of this. My son's going to be proud of it. We want to create a legacy. We want to get more kids on skateboards. We want to be, I want to be in Target. I want to be distributed all over the world through all sorts of crazy, awesome distribution channels through to include core all the way to Target. I want to bring it all together. I don't see the problem. Like, an iPhone sold everywhere. You go to Verizon, you go to Flippin' Target, you go anywhere, you can buy a flipping iPhone. I don't see anybody having a problem with that. They're still wildly happy to hold up their iPhone and aren't worried about the core. And then I think of this too, sorry, but it just keeps on going. Like the irony that people are like, that's not cool, but I'll take that check from Nike and Adidas and like they're, you, know, you can buy those shoes anywhere on the earth. You walk through any mall and anybody's wearing them. And then they're like, okay with that, but then they're not okay with this other, the, 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 the contradictions within this sort of concept are outrageous. And people just need to step back and just say, are they skating and having fun? Uh, <laughs> that's it. Like uh, Andy Anderson is a skateboarder that wears a helmet and he does all these incredibly wild tricks and he's always happy and I don't know Andy personally. Um, and I'm going to do shout outs. Like there's a skateboard company called Braille and Revive. And these are skateboard brands that exist and skateboarders that exist, Jagger Eaton, that get catch so much shit for basically not caring. And isn't that what skateboarding was built on? And now all of a sudden it's become something where like it's so judgmental and so like everybody's like, oh, he's wearing a helmet. Oh, he does this. He skates this way. His parents showed up. And all these things which are like, dude, these are all the things that we like fought our whole lives to get to finally. And we are punk rock. Well, now the new punk rock is Andy Anderson. The new punk rock is Braille. The new punk rock is Heart Supply because the, we're ones going against the grain and trying to do things a little differently and getting all that pushback that skaters used to get. Cause now if you're a skater and you, and you support a lot of these like kind of sort of cool brand, I mean, look at Supreme, like that's easy. I mean, I love Supreme, but like you're accepted. That's cool. Like it's cool as shit. It's not cool to be, you know, Andy Anderson in a lot of ways. That guy has to put up with a lot of shit or he had to, he had to earn his stripes so hard. The same way a core ass skater back in the day had to earn their stripes like the Beastie Boys or the Jungle Brothers or Tribe Called Quest or Nottis Coppice and Mark Gonzalez and all these guys. They had to earn their stripes so hard. And now it's really easy just to be cool and be like a trendy ass cool skater rocking dope ass clothes and all the girls are into you and boys are into you and vice versa. But to be the new brands that are pushing against the grain and changing, it's more punk rock to be an Olympian skater than it is to be a cool guy core skater that's part of like that that underground movement right now because that's very cool and accepted. But to be in the Olympics and be Nigel Houston or Jagger Eaton or Himana Reynolds and be proud to get a medal and be proud to represent making some money and making power moves as, in a career, that is the new core in my opinion. To be a kid at a skate park with a helmet and a mohawk on it with your parents and a friend, your best friends at a scooter, that's punk rock. Mm -hmm. To go there, I, I saw a guy the other day rollerblading at a skate park and he was so stoked. He had like his headphones on and he's like rollerblading through the park. And I'm like, now that's punk rock. Mm -hmm. That dude has so much balls. Like the fact that he came in here doesn't give a rat. He's got all these skaters like, dr like drinking their six pack, like 
what's up with that dude? Like somebody go get this dude out of our park. And you're like, bro, that dude's punk rock. Like that is gnarly. That's like skating in the eighties. Holy shit. I, that's, that's the most skate thing I've seen all day is the dude on the rollerblades that had the balls to come in here and skate. That, now, now that's skate. The scooter kid that shows up at a core ass park in the hood and the, all the skaters are there smoking weed and have a six pack and the dude rolls up with his mom and his fucking scooter. I'm like, now that's a skater. Oh yeah, man. I, I'm, I'm laughing only when I was a kid, uh, we were out skating downtown Calgary and there were these rollerbladers and we were just like doing what you're doing. Just like, God, this is like yeah. our spot. What are these clowns? Like, and of course they were like older than us. They were like physically fit dudes who were like, yeah, those guys, like we're not saying anything to yeah. them. And one dude comes up friendliest dude, big smile on his face. He's like, Hey man, would you mind if I tried your skateboard? And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. And he crushed it. Yeah. He was just like, whatever the tricks are at the time, this dude is, was doing it. And I was like, and I literally said, why are you roller skating? He's like, well, why can't I do both? Right. And I was a little kid at the time. Well, I mean, I was a teenager and I was floored, but of course I was a kid. So like we laughed, we're like, Oh, what a poser. But it's like, no. And I think about that guy once in a while. And I, your story was making me think about it. It was like, Oh, that was just a happy person. Yeah. Like that was a happy person who was probably a good athlete who could enjoy a lot of things where I was an unhappy person. And I found refuge in a scene, which is super cool and was very helpful to me sure. in many ways. But clinging to the rules of that scene and That's wanting right. to put those rules on everyone else was part of what I thought gave me stability, but it's actually fed into unhappiness. All right. So as we're closing off, where can people find the heart supply? Um, well, <laughs> sorry, I have to regress. I just have to regress. Yes. I can't, I cannot help myself. Uh, if you today, this has been my little obsession lately and, and, and you because skateboarding is all about like relevance, right? Like it's like, it's be here now. And it's like this ever evolving, like at once moment, like that's skateboarding. Like you do a kickflip in that moment of like nothingness, right? Like that's skating like that when you're bombing a hill and there's nothing else around you. Cause if you think even anything else, but bombing the hill, you're toast. Yeah. Same thing with the kickflip, all that stuff. It's like be here now is skateboarding, right? That's skateboarding. It's not then and it's not here. It's here, right? So when I think of skateboarding, and this is like my rule of thumb, and this goes back to the heart supply and why, why did I start the heart supply? If you're any human being and you close your eyes and you think of a skate park, because that's like today, that would be the, the, the now of skateboarding. And you think of a skate park where everybody goes typically to skate and you close your eyes and you're like, okay, do me a favor and describe what you see. I don't care if you're from the eighties or like whoever, like what is reality? Mm -hmm. Like describe to me what you see. They would say, I see a family mm -hmm. with the dad and a kid and a scooter. And I see kids with helmets and I see pads mm -hmm. and I see all like you would describe something that is real. Like it's not what you're talking about in a board meeting. It's not what you're talking about. Like a bunch of core guys, all bitter about what the hell how much it's changed because that's it's like music like that's that's what it was mm -hmm. but it's not elvis presley anymore mm -hmm. like when you close your eyes what do you see like what is it and when you go there is it consistent with what you closed your eyes and saw and that is reality of business you, you can definitely look for the future i think you should 
but you also have to come to terms with like what it is now it's in the olympics it does have scooters it does have rollerbladers it does have parents it is going down this path and you can either embrace it and grow with it and start a brand that that speaks to that proudly or you can be a poser and capitalize on it quietly and not admit it or you know you can just get the hell away from it but that that to me really is the the truth of like what we're trying to do and do it in a positive manner and get as many skateboards under kids feet as possible um so where you can find the hard supply is uh everywhere which is why i'm so excited um we we uh are and I I gotta think you know there's, there's people out there like Eastern Skate Supply, Skate Warehouse, a lot of uh, Centrano, a lot of really cool distributors and people that have really supported the the concept, which I've, I'm so grateful for. Um, and so the you can get it at at lots of skate shops around the world, um, along with uh, uh, Target, which is like probably for me one of the coolest sort of moments, aha moments of my life. And I'm so proud of the fact that we are distributed into a mass market. I'm proud of it on so many levels. I, it's, 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 it's just mind boggling to, to, have, to have been able to pull that off. So you can find it in mass market, especially at Target, and you can definitely find it in the core market also. Um, and if you can't, you should definitely ask for it because we want to spread the message that I'm talking about. And because and we're, we're not trying to compete with those guys. We're trying to help elevate the industry. Um, yeah. Hell yeah. All right, man. So as we're closing off, um, I've got one more question for you. And then I want to give you a space for any final words that you have, anything you want to plug, anything you want to bring into the conversation. So I'm going to start, or I'm going to end with the first question that I asked you. Hmm. So who are you and what do you do? Uh, that's really interesting, huh? That's good. That's clever. Wow. I bet this is the same reaction a lot of people have, right? <laughs> Damn, that's good. I'm an artist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's good, man. That's really psychological, right? There's your therapist background coming in hot. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely an artist. I am definitely a father and a husband um, and a parent. Uh I'm an entrepreneur for sure. Uh, I'm a storyteller. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. Um, and you know what's rad is I'm happy. Yeah. I'm super stoked. I, I really am. I'm I'm a hap so happy. Mm -hmm. You know, just, just that, that's probably yeah. Oh, and I said earlier I'm a deep thinker, and you just like now you catch why. And and um, even that question, I have to think about it. I think. Uh, because I know this is recorded. I always think about those things. And I'm like, I want to look back on that and be proud, right? So I think the most important thing that I am is I am a parent and a husband. Mm -hmm. Like that to me is like the ultimate like purpose in my life is that I have two amazing little humans that I'm responsible for. And I have a beautiful wife and both inside and out. And that we are like literally like a family unit. And I wish there was a word. Is there a word that's a parent and a husband? What is that called? They need to come up with a word for that. Why does that exist? 
That's a problem. That's probably why there's so many fucking divorces in the world, right? <laughs> because they haven't come up with a word that keeps it all together. That's right. So no, that's that's uh, for sure. All right, man. Um, so finally, anything you want to add before we close off? Yes, I was thinking about it a little bit in the back of my head. Um, so the project that I'm most proud of by, because uh, I mentioned Target, I'm really excited about being in Target. I'm really excited about getting skateboards to the masses and also what that fiscally does for our, the, the health of our team riders' pocketbooks and the brand itself. And it's just amazing how that, that type of distribution can support skaters as they should be supported, which is something that's very, very important. Um, but what I'm most proud of as far as initiatives that we have done with the Heart Supply is a project in Mexico called Chala. And Chala, it, it was something that was really awesome at Element that also was, you know, not to dig in, keep digging into Element because I'm not. It's just part of the things that as an evolving brand that changed is that we had Element Skate Camp. Um, we had many camps, but we had one in particular called Element Skate Camp in Visalia National Forest. Um, and it, it's beautiful, Sequoia National Forest. And with the hard supply, one of the, you know, sort of the things that left me kind of a, a little uh, upset about when I left Element is that that, I, that was, it, it, Element had lost that camp. And also it was something that my son's name is Camp, mm -hmm. um, kind of giving you the, the, how important that is to me. Um, and so when Heart Supply had started, it was like, how do we recreate something that's special for ourselves as a company because of like, you know, live and learn and what made, makes your company special and gives your team riders and how do you make change and all these things that are so important to me with respect to change and purpose and not just a job and not just being in target. And like I had mentioned earlier, the, the fiscal benefits of that, but then how do you, uh, identify how you're making positive change. So immediately when Heart Supply had started, that was like almost more important than building a business. It was like, how do we make a difference? So we ended up connecting. I met a, an incredible individual by the name of Ricardo Santa Cruz, who was in the process of developing a property in Mexico called Chala, the town of Chala. And we ended up really hitting it off. And he's an amazing phil philanthropic human who has developed some incredible properties. And so when we started connecting and I started learning more about what was going on on the property and the towns nearby and the surrounding area and so on, it was really clear that there might be an opportunity for us to do something together. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting that always kind of bothered me with skateboarding was that Mexico is so close by. And we service skateboarding around the world very well. But Mexico seems to be, uh, it needs help in skate, the skateboard community. It needs a, like the us here in the US, you know, we do actually kind of like define skate culture or we have for many years and that's changing quite a bit now. But like, how can we get involved and, and do more things? I mean, skateboards are manufactured over there. Lots of them are. So we, we started, um, talking um ricardo and i and the whole idea was like hey we should build a skate park on the property of chala and we should build the heart park and so and we can give back and be involved with the community and do some talent searching and find great skateboarders over there and then start doing some like cross-pollination where skaters from the heart supply and in general in the community from all around the world could go into 
uh, Mexico in the town of Chal that we're developing, which is right outside of Puerto Vallarta. And we could uh, start visiting there and skating there more frequently. And not that this wasn't already happening because skaters do go in there and there's a pretty thriving skate community. But Ricardo's vision was building a town that uh, embraced the community and helped where this property it's when you go to these resorts, typically, you know, you go inside and you're in there and there's a giant wall and you're actually not really experiencing the culture of where you are and you're not really experience, experiencing the culture with the locals, etc. So this whole idea was like, no, that's the opposite. We're going to bring in and invite open door policy to all the local people to include visitors and so on and build a community where everyone that works there and is that's part of it's like 360 degrees of of uh, tourists that are visiting to come and surf and skate and do all these different things along with interacting with the local community with agriculture and stores and even like a little uh, like a hospital for that's that schooling a, a creative center so on and this is on 3,000 acres on wow. the coast of of Mexico and wow. it's absolutely tropical and gorgeous and this guy Ricardo has just got a heart of gold and so when we started talking and I'm hearing all this and there's like, I mean, it is insane. There's like a turtle sanctuary on the beach and, and there's uh, a soccer field. And again, there's uh, mango fields, like acres and hundreds of acres of mango fields and just gorgeous. So he, his first priority, once we start talking, he's like, let's build the park and let's build it now. So we built this skate park uh, that's already finished and ready to roll and kids are there skating as we speak. And it's on this 3,000 acres along the coast, and they're bringing in, they're building houses and, and boutique hotels and so on. And it's going to be an absolutely phenomenal, top-notch property. But in the same breath, we have school buses that are going out and picking up local kids and bringing them in to skate. And we're teaching lessons, and we're doing board drops and getting really involved with the local community. And the fact that we're able to see that change, like there's a lot of times you're involved and you don't quite know what you're really doing when you donate money or you have like a, a function and a nonprofit, you don't really know exactly the change that's going down. So we're going in and doing this physically and seeing the, the boards being given and teaching these kids like ourselves and interacting and skating with the community. And then also bringing in the local heroes and the sponsored kids and giving them boards and giving it more attention. And all this is happening on, um, on this particular property. And that, um, has been probably my proudest moment with the heart supply. In addition to that, because of our uh, luxury of moving a quantity of completes through our distribution channels and having a level of success pretty quickly with the brand, which we're very proud of, is that this thus far we have given away more than 2,000 skateboard completes to kids in need around the world. Hell yeah. So already with the heart supply we've done more philanthropic stuff with our brand i kind of feel like that i've done in my whole career combined in such a short period of time with that level of freedom independence um and i think keeping it pure skate like like without all the 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 noise around me and just being like why am i doing this yeah so that that's like sort of my plug of like what I'm most proud of with, with the heart supply for sure. Hell yeah, man. Awesome. Well, listen, this has been an amazing conversation. We did two and a half hours. 
flew literally flew by man felt cool. like five minutes this was super cool, cool. thank you so I much i thought we were gonna time. do like two on the money when you said two i heard you say it earlier i was like i i know i'm definitely gonna go two. <laughs> two and change two and change two. i did a nine club and it was like two and change yeah. yeah listen man you killed it uh thank you so much you anything you want to say before we pop off hey you know uh i think the the most important thing you know this is about leadership right i mean yeah. that's what we're really talking about here I think the first thing about being a leader is you got to understand yourself. And being a leader is about being as good inside as you are outside. Like you can't lead until you yourself are a leader of yourself. And so you have to like take the time. If you are listening to this and your goal is to be a leader, you need to spend as much time on yourself as you do your business because I didn't do that. And it really fucks me up that I think about like all those years that I spent thinking I was becoming more successful, but I was actually regressing as an individual, mm -hmm. which made me a worse leader. Mm -hmm. So the more you start understanding people's personalities and what's important in life and respecting people's families and their and them the people that work for you and your goals but most importantly the more you uh spend time improving and building your personal awareness and and that is how you become a great leader because when you fix yourself and then you walk in that office and you understand what it's like to be a healthy person because you too are leading by example because you are the healthy person. Then what you, how you lead is healthy. And I don't think people do that. I think that that's a huge problem is that you have to be a leader who has self-awareness. Hell yeah, man. That's awesome. All right. I don't think we could end off any more perfectly than that. Uh, dude, thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. I've loved it. That's great. Awesome. All right. Everyone will see you in the outro and Spencer drop the beat. One step. One.